0: Camilla and you're listening to the cat's whisker a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it people stories and the music that changed the world in a few words it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me you've always wondered what it was like I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play so let's roll Welcome back to the cat's whisker. I am Camilla and today we have a very very special episode because today is the anniversary Actually the 60th anniversary of the release of the Beatles very first album Please, please me and with me to celebrate this day and to basically have a reason to geek out about the Beatles. I think I kept myself very quiet in the past months, but, you know, the Beatles are my favorite band and the reason why I moved to Liverpool. So I am so excited to be talking about the Beatles today. And the person I've chosen to carry this weight with is...
1: Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, no. Uh, He wasn't available, but is um, Liam Mannion, a resident musician at the Cabin Club, singer, songwriter, professional musician and songwriter not only for the songs where he changes uh, all the lyrics like, do you promise (laughs) not to smell (laughs) instead of do you promise not to tell?
1: Technically that was my colleague Kev, (laughs) told me to do that.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's true, (laughs) I would never do that. Well, you changed words to many, many songs and it's absolutely not appropriate for the Cavern Club. But um, <laughs> you have to know that uh, that's not the only reason why I called him today. He's here also because he is a massive Beatle fan. He says that he's even a bigger Beatle fan than me. Do you think you are?
1: Mm, I don't know. It's a close race. I just know more.
0: Oh... <laughs> Well, that's why I called you, so I'm very happy that you're here. Thank you very much for being here today. So we really wanted to talk about Please Please Me, all the things that maybe people don't know and all the backstory behind it. And we'll also give you some insight about the amazing songs on the album. I have a question for you, though, first. What's your favorite Beatles album?
1: Um, People always ask these questions. And I'm the worst person to ask because... <laughs> true, that's true. One. You don't even know. <laughs> I, I don't even you're know. You are a great
0: Beatles fan, but you don't even know. know which songs are where. I
1: know roughly where they go. But...
0: <laughs> Would you say I'm the in with the um, Beatles? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I don't have one. It's like I don't have a favorite oh, what's your favorite
0: song. Beatles era?
1: Earlier earlier yeah you know
0: i i I agree you know i really like it even if my favorite album in general i always thought was revolver because it's like there in the middle um i definitely prefer the earlier stuff because it's just it's so exciting isn't it
1: well for me being in a band the four piece band you can actually reproduce it as well Th-
0: that's true because you know um Liam actually for those who don't know it he um who
1: wouldn't <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's a resident musician but he plays in a band they're called the Shakers they are uh, there um for three sets every Sunday so if you're in Liverpool make sure you check them out not only because they are great I know i I people might say I'm biased But I am not biased because they are absolutely great and they perform everywhere in the UK. They also have a theatre show, so just check them out. Um, I hope Tony, the leader of the band, the the drummer, will be (laughs) proud of this.
1: (laughs) And if you don't like us, then all complaints forward to the Cat's Whisker podcast.
0: (laughs) Hey, I'm giving you free (laughs) advertisements on my free radio show. (laughs) Anyway... um, I mean, the, you play a lot of Mersey Beats stuff.
1: Yeah. Jerry and the Facemakers. Um, the Searchers. Who else? Cilla Black. Cilla Black.
0: Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. Yes. Is it possible that I know the set list better than <laughs> It's you?
1: possible because everybody knows the set list better than me.
0: <laughs> but, you know, I guess that... Especially since when you started as a musician you actually created your own band, I bet the Beatles were actually in your mind a lot.
1: Oh yeah, a lot. Heavy influence from the Beatles. Yeah, very much so. And any band, I don't know how any band that exists hasn't got some influence from them because it's the best story in the world, you know. Everybody wants to be like, I would assume. (laughs) <laughs> everybody I mean, wants like to be like them. and yeah. you
0: are a professional musician and you are a performer or a songwriter yes i mean that's 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 the goal, you it's know the
1: absolute fantasy and the dream they actually did it you know
0: because it's so unbelievable we always say that yeah. they made it and they came from here you know and so here being
1: liverpool <laughs> of course yeah we are in liverpool not this room but
0: <laughs> i wish
1: <laughs> no but it's just the best story you know and the further away it we get from it in time like these anniversaries come up it's 60 years since the first album mm-hmm. the, the more unbelievable it is it, it
0: gets more legendary i guess
1: yeah. it's just the best band story that ever happened
0: yeah and actually it's not only a success story that you know they were good and everyone everybody knew that they were good and it doesn't really happen very often that people consider like all together a band to be good a musician to be good or even a song to be good and it's actually good because in some cases there is like some sort of I don't I don't want to say gatekeeping but some people actually feel very edgy when they like something and maybe it's not even that good or maybe the lyrics are good and the music is not good so it's not very commercially like you know you can't really sell it that much they don't get to be number one hits but at the same time, you know, I feel like the Beatles had all the perfect, you know, skills and possibilities and opportunities, yeah. even though it wasn't easy at the beginning.
1: Yeah, of course, you know. But they were there at the right time as well. That helps. Absolutely. But it's magical, you know.
0: Absolutely. So I thought I would give you a little backstory about how please please me came about but most of all like how the Beatles actually got a record deal so we all know that um the Beatles very very famous and you know a dedicated um manager was Brian Epstein and um he was in London at HMV at 363 Oxford Street one day because the shop offered a disc in service. So what he did was he took the Decca Audition tapes that we all know didn't really go very well. They recorded them on January the 1st, 1962, so just a few weeks before. So he took them there because he wanted to make a 78 RPM acetate because, as I was saying, there was a disc in service with a technician that was called Jim Foy that when he listened to the songs he was quite impressed especially since the songs uh, like like dreamers do or hello little girl or love of the loved were originals and it wasn't that common back then but maybe you know having one good song but it wasn't like it became a hit, but it wasn't really your song, material that you wrote. But they, I feel like they stood out since the beginning because they had, they had a lot of material that they actually wrote themselves. And it wasn't as common. People think of the 60s, especially probably because of a lot of musicians in the late 60s that wrote uh, music themselves, especially like, you know, political music. I'm thinking about Bob Dylan or I think about... Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, etc. But many probably don't consider that the beginning of the 60s and even the end of the 50s was the era of songwriters, not singer songwriters. I mean, I talked about it when I talked about Carol King, but even about all those couples that wrote for the Everly Brothers, etc. So it was really remarkable. Uh, that finally, someone was actually bringing something that they were recorded—not not good enough for Decca, <laughs> but you've heard—we've got we've got them here. Actually. I have
1: the vinyl of the, the Decca, Decca, Decca recording. Yeah. yeah.
0: What do you think about them?
1: I quite like them. Yeah. yeah. And if you listen to later interviews with John Lennon, he he also says they were pretty good recordings, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but didn't pass the audition.
0: No, unfortunately, I'm sure not. that
1: guy. What was his name? The guy who turned. Oh, him down. I don't remember. I Can't remember. There's beautiful people now screaming at. Us, but, um, <laughs> anyway, whoever he was, he made a big fucking mistake. <laughs> <laughs> definitely,
0: definitely. That's probably why they signed the Rolling Stones. Not. I imagine. After. I imagine
1: that that day when he got home from work, you know, he might have had a bad morning, and you he felt really good about turning down a band. You know, when he got home. Felt great about that. Ah, I got to turn down that stupid little band. Six months <laughs> so yeah. love, love do. You do? <laughs> oh, for <before>, God's sake! <laughs> I have made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. No.
0: The engineer Jim Foy asks uh, Brian Epstein. Oh, if you want, I can talk to Sid Coleman was the head of Ardmore & Beechwood, which was a subsidiary of EMI that happened to be on the top floor of that HMV. Um, Coleman offered uh, to publish Lennon McCartney originals, but since Epstein actually uh, won a recording contract, which, you know, fair enough, you want that for your band, that's, you know, the goal. Coleman fixed him up with EMI producer, drumroll, George Martin, To return the favour, Epstein promises that um, should the Beatles sign to uh, EMI, Armor and Beechwood would get the publishing rights of some songs. In fact, they will get the publishing rights of, I think, both Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, which are obviously the first ones that uh, were published. Then what happened? Coleman, which again was the head of this uh, subsidiary of EMI, called George Martin and asked him if he'd be interested in seeing a band. He said yes, and Judy Lockhart-Smith, Martin's assistant, jotted down meeting with Bernard Epstein.
1: (laughs) We should say a little bit there about um, Epstein. Mm -hmm. Because like people say that he made a lot of bad deals with um, certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, But... If you think about what happened, he didn't really make any bad deals because I'm sure no, exactly. that if he hadn't have made those, in quotes, bad deals, they wouldn't have made it, you know. I he's a know, very, very interesting character, Brian Epstein. He, yeah. And there was, there was a really good BBC arena documentary somewhere, about it used to be on YouTube I can't find it anymore. But if anyone can find that, it's really worth a watch because he's such an interesting character.
0: I believe they're making a film now about I hope him they do. as well. I think they were... Um Filming it in Liverpool like last year or something like that. Great, and it's gonna be called Milo's Touch. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, I guess that people want to say that about people that get successful a lot. Like, yeah, but he also did a lot of bad things, you know. Sometimes people say that about dictators, but like in real life, he did a lot of good things. (laughs) But I don't know. I guess to humanize people that really made everything out of Well myself. i've never
1: had that illusion you know that these about these people that i consider like my idols i've never had like the illusion that they were completely perfect people in every area yeah, well, of life
0: course, because they were human beings you but know?
1: whatever it is that they were the characters that they were made this thing you know yeah and it's absolutely incredible
0: no exactly i i absolutely agree with you and um obviously one of the most important meetings was the one with George Martin that then became the Beatles producer but not only me. I mean he really helped shape in like yeah, yeah the sound of the of you know the band and that happened on February 13th 1962 at the EMI's head office in Manchester Square um, where Martin listened to Hello Little Girl and uh, Tilda Was You. His legs crossed under the table, leaning on his elbow. He nodded and smiled while Epstein was singing praises of his band. I bet he was one of those that really, like, couldn't stop talking about yeah. how good the bands were you know I it, I it was very very funny even to read the different perceptions that Martin and Epstein had of the same event um, well first of all um, <laughs> it was very funny to read that Epstein asked him if he had ever heard of them because I guess like when you have a band that is so big where you are it's impossible for you to even perceived that no one like that someone never heard of them
1: and that was then before social media exactly
0: you know and obviously I was like no I never heard of them (laughs) but you know that was a time that it was basically impossible to see what was going on in the provinces so everything that was like outside London I guess that for some people wasn't really worth discovering that much
1: yeah but on the other side of that everybody played everywhere in those days So you would have had like um, bands from London coming up to play up the North and vice versa.
0: Yeah, especially, I mean, the Beatles played even like in Germany, you know, so it was crazy that in Hamburg people knew who they were and in London, people didn't really know. And London
1: had that attitude, like it probably still has now, but you know, that nothing exists outside of We lost
0: all our listeners from London. (laughs) (laughs) you know no 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 but, that's true but you know london is very london centric yeah so as i was saying earlier f Sine and martin recalled this very first meeting in a slightly different way let's put it that way so george martin certainly saw something in them the quality of their sound and yet a certain roughness Martin appreciated Hello Little Girl, George's guitar skills, and Paul's voice that he described as the most commercial of the lot. He really liked the fact that there wasn't really a lead singer. All of them were given their own contribution to the music. But he also said that um, some of the material was old and mediocre and could understand why they had been rejected in the past. But still, they seemed interesting so even though he didn't think they were worth signing yet martin decided to give them a shot and offer them a recording session now epstein like recalled this in a completely different way probably because you know he was so excited about everything you know So what he did um, was, obviously, he had a great impression of George Martin. And after the appointment, he called the Beatles to tell them he was coming back with good news. And as soon as the train from London arrived at Lime Street, the four boys were at the platform, which he thought was very odd because they weren't usually that sentimental, you know. Um, But they were obviously waiting to know what the future had in store for them. I mean, that's a big decision, you know. And Epstein's first words would basically change their life forever. So he said to them, you have a recording session at EMI as soon as you like. And like, obviously, they were all made up. And then they went to the National Milk Bar to celebrate with Coca-Cola and biscuits, which <laughs> is very cute. I think you
1: can see that milk bar on old pictures of Land Station. Oh my Street God, Station.
0: I really want to go and see where it was.
1: Well, it's where the steps are now, I think.
0: Oh, Ellie. Oh, there used to be
1: like a lot of buildings outside there.
0: So I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine how exciting that must have been? I can't, yeah. yeah. It's
1: even just every time, even though I've heard these stories before, every time I hear them, I'm, I'm completely enthralled again, you know. Mhm. Never gets old.
0: No, absolutely. But you know, the thing is like when he got this kind of like deal to have a recording session a few months passed though. So what happened in between? Kim Bennett, who was a record plugger for Ardmore and Beechwood, took the Decca recordings to pitch them to the EMI's talent scouts. They weren't really impressed, but thought of a new plan to get the records into the right hands.
1: Or oh, hey. the left hands, if you
0: what was suggested was that the general manager Sid Coleman should talk to EMI's managing director Len Wood remember these names and convince him to put out a Beatles record on the condition that Armour and Beachwood would pay for the costs but this starts a lot of drama that could probably compete with Love Island do you know about this drama never heard of it George Martin was in the process of separating from his wife, Sheena.
1: Oh, no, I thought you meant, have you ever heard of Love Island? I was trying to (laughs) sound cooler over the airways.
2: Oh, sure.
1: (laughs) Who's going to come and see This is
0: basically telling everyone that we watch Love Island, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, we watch it.
0: But did you know about this drama? I don't
1: know about that, yeah.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay. So let's tell everyone else because I think it's... uh, quite interesting (laughs) because again everything happened for a reason and it was all to (laughs) get the Beatles where they had to be so George Martin was in the process of separating from his wife Sheena so when he had started uh, dating his assistant the one that I mentioned earlier Judy Lockett smith the one that wrote Bernard Epstein basically uh, the two had to keep the relationship a secret Len Wood was again the head of EMI wasn't really thrilled when he discovered about it and Martin apparently was already walking on eggshells during that time because he had tried to renegotiate his contract and EMI let's say um, wasn't thrilled about that either so since Martin always produced comedy records and wasn't really that's that- the
1: point as well like you speak to people who were old enough to remember when they came out mm-hmm. especially Love Me Do <clears throat> the guy that got me into Playing in bands with my friend Jerry, that you know, mm-hmm. some people won't know who that is, but he remembers when they came out Love Me Do. Nobody could take it seriously because it was on Parlophone, it was a comedy yeah. label, and everybody just didn't take it seriously at first, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most people thought that Love Me Do was crap, you know, when they first heard it.
0: Do you think that now there is a, such an attachment to labels? obviously labels in no general... who, who
1: even knows who's on what label now you know
0: exactly which
1: exactly. is sad because people but, uh, what used I mean to... is like
0: industrially obviously each label chooses what to produce i'm pretty sure there are some labels that produce classic music classical music and some others that don't but uh, who knows like that now
1: i know and it's sad because if you again if you speak to people from that era mm-hmm. they used to know all of the labels yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah. Designs, you know, they would know which one was which, and Palafone had that, this had that, and everyone, it was really a thing, you know. Which
0: is so interesting, you know. You're not as interested in literature as I am, but I, th- I feel that for books there is still that thing. All right. Yeah. But I feel like it's there's nothing like that for music anymore.
1: No, like I said, who knows what label anybody's signed to? I,
0: in some cases, I don't even know. Well, I mean, not that it. The thing is, like, it's it's not that it makes a difference. Does it actually now?
1: No, it doesn't make any difference now. No, I mean the music. You know, it's not even <laughs> worth listening to. So what's the point? <laughs> could be on any label nobody cares
0: no exactly so since he was always you know producing he produced peter sellers etc like he produced comedy records um so he wasn't really used to uh guitar groups so to punish him because we're gonna go back to the drama now lenwood and sid coleman decide to make a deal emi would give ardmore and Beachwood the publishing rights to like dreamers do and uh, George Martin would be asked to work on the session. And that's how it started. At 11.30 a.m. on Wednesday the 9th, 1962, George Martin invites Brian Epstein to the EMI Studios in Abbey Road and offers the Beatles a recording contract with Parlophone. Little did they know that only seven years later that same band that Martin reluctantly signed in those studios would make Abbey Road famous, releasing one of the most critically acclaimed albums of all time. But let's talk about the contract. It was quite standard. Maybe, you know, so, some of the things that say that he accepted bad deals. I don't think this is a bad deal, you'll tell me what you think. Yemai committed to recording a minimum of six sides in the first year, which would normally be released as three singles. The Beatles royalty rate was the standard one penny per single on 85% of sales paid quarterly. The remaining 15% was retained to cover promotional copies and store returns. LPs were calculated at the same rate, normally at 6 of 7 singles. The contract was for 4 years, although EMI had a break clause after 1 year. Should they choose to renew after that time, the royalty rate would increase by farthing, which was the quarter penny, uh, increments up to 1.5 pence. That rate only applied to Britain, however, elsewhere in the world, the Beatles would receive half
1: of the amount
0: which with, for the Beatles, still, I don't think it was a bad deal in the end.
1: No, no, but the thing is, as well, you have to remember that just to get a recording contract, even nowadays, probably in some ways even harder,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's such a big thing that you would you would take almost any deal, you know?
0: No, exactly.
1: Because if you're a band that is as good as they are, then it doesn't matter what your initial deals are. No. Look, look at how big it still is, you know.
0: No, exactly. If they
1: hadn't have took those deals, who who knows who would have even like given them another chance, you know?
0: No, exactly, especially since they had been rejected so yeah. many times. And Epstein took fifteen percent of their income, and uh, the remainder was split between the four Beatles equally, meaning that they each stood to earn just fifteen shillings for sales of a thousand singles.
1: Which is pretty. Lousy, but it's better than working in a factory.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. But this didn't matter. Epstein was absolutely thrilled, and as soon as he left EMI, he ran to the post office and sent telegrams to the Beatles in Hamburg to give them the good news. George was the first stop that morning and was the one who checked the post and read the telegram. The boys were absolutely over the moon, as you can imagine, with excitement and promptly replied with postcards. Paul said, please wire £10,000 uh, advance royalties. Which is very ironic because then John said, when are we going to be millionaires? <laughs> very soon, John.
1: That's what they wanted to be, you know.
0: Yeah. And George, who is probably the most <laughs> down to earth, just said, please order four new guitars.
1: <laughs> I wonder what Ringo said.
0: Well, they were still with Pete Best then.
1: Really? Yes, they When they were. got offered this contract.
0: Yes, they were. And he actually did their first recording session. I'm taking it very slowly, (laughs) I told
2: you.
1: Let's make a little point as well by um about George Martin. Mm -hmm. He was actually working class. And he affected He was
0: a very smart dressed man. Yeah but he affected that. Yeah yeah yeah.
1: Because he wanted to get a job in like somewhere like EMI and he realized that nobody would take a working class accent. So he developed the educated accent
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the suave thing yeah, yeah 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 you know so he was actually working class which is probably why he got on with them as well because he yeah, liked the true, cheekiness true, true.
0: you know no absolutely i
1: hope that affected was the right way to say it <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um imagine though like that night when they got the news um they were in germany okay they had to perform that night at the star club Like, my God, can you imagine? Like, you're performing far away from home. Like, you had a gig that was exactly the same the day before. And now you have a a record deal. Yeah. You feel like
1: you're better than anybody else. I can kind of, like, understand. Because the closest I got was getting, like, the endorsement from Hofner Guitars.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. true. I remember that
1: day. It was, like, kind of like that, you know. Yeah, cause, yeah. 'Cause shortly afterwards, like the day later, we were put on the website as Hofner Artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the excitement just from that, you know. So imagine what it's like to get a record deal. No, of course. I mean, I was i was flying high for and so many weeks. Magazines you
0: know. as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, it takes you nothing can affect you, you know. Yeah. Like, well obviously they send you guitars yeah, and basses. But, like well. just the fact of somebody so big like wanting you, yeah you know?
0: yeah yeah it's an affirmation of what you are doing
1: yeah and it's like it you don't come down from that for weeks you know i mean oh. so what must it have been like for them on that scale
0: oh my god
1: you know unbelievable
0: no, exactly.
1: This is a problem we're talking about The Beatles because you can go on forever because you just go off into tangents and, you
0: know. No, no, absolutely. And obviously, as I was saying, this is an excuse to geek out about them because we talk about them non stop. I mean, we've just listened right before recording to the mono version. Of yeah, and I didn't realize
1: many. until I listened to it that I'd never heard the mono version. And it's no, exactly. so much better, you know.
0: No, 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 exactly. Because exactly.
1: the mix is actually for mono.
0: Yeah, no, 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 exactly, and we're gonna talk about the recording sessions as well, which obviously were not their first ones, but that's their first album, so it must. And and it was pretty crazy the recording <laughs> Oh, Please yeah. Please Me as well. Um, from the day they got the news of the record deal, Lennon and McCartney obviously had started writing new songs and reworking old songs, all in preparation of their first time at Abbey Road. The place that will end up feeling like a second home to them, basically. So, they arrived at the studios on June the 6th, 1962, at 3 o'clock. And their session was booked from 7 to 10pm in Studio 2. They had tiny box amps and speakers, and the sound was far from great. Do you know anything about the gear that they must have used? Because I read everywhere that you know, since they were even moving that much up and down the country, the, the I don't the, think the amps they had, were I don't anyway.
1: think they had the Voxes at that point. Not for "Love Me Do." Mm-hmm. Um. McCartney was probably using his coffin base, which the, was the built. The
0: bass amp was a bit big problem actually. It
1: was built by Adrian Barber, who was in the Big Three, I think. Mm-hmm. He built amps and he built oh, him right. one. It was a quite a decent amp for it, for the time, especially for a homemade one. Lennon was probably using his Fender, I think it was a Deluxe, but I'm not too sure, but I know it was a Fender Tweed amp, mm-hmm. little one. George either had a Selma True Voice or his Gibson Les Paul amp.
0: Right, so you reckon the Vox was The like Vox was later, I think. Later.
1: A little bit later.
0: But whatever they had, they were, pretty small and not in a great condition they were knackered you know exactly so what happened was that they couldn't really hear anything you know especially like the sound engineers so um the amp john had was rattling they fixed it tying a string around it and then there was a problem with pete Best's symbols and the most problematic piece of equipment was actually Paul's bass amp. So much so that the balance engineer, Norman Smith, had to add an echo chamber to get something out of it.
1: I've, I've read that they actually used a subwoofer from the studio. Like oh, there they rig, go. Like they rigged something up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. E- either that that might have been on anything. the
1: Deco one, I'm not sure.
0: Oh, maybe. But I guess they were using basically the same equipment, you know.
1: The fact that they were using that battered gear, because it's them and you think the Beatles, this big thing, you think it's impossible. How could they have had that gear? You know, somebody would have given them this brand new gear, but they weren't that at the time. No, of course. And it's so hard to get your head around.
0: Especially if you consider that they had just been in Hamburg playing literally every day. Yeah.
1: I mean, how reliable those amps actually were when you think about it.
0: Yeah, they must have been quite reliable amps anyway.
1: Oh yeah, a Fender and a Gibson. But no, in those days it was proper, well-made. hmm Paul's was homemade, <laughs> So yeah. great though, great looking thing.
0: But so they had some problems, but then they managed to record. They finally started recording and they were produced by George Martin, as we know. But it wasn't really common that for, for producers to take part in artist tests um because let's not forget that this was the first time that they actually you know um recorded something and did they uh, met George Martin this was it absolutely the first time for them so it's not really that common as I was saying for producers to take part to these um artists tests but when Norman Smith that uh, was the engineer saw George Martin step inside the control room kind of got the hint that these people were special in a way I don't know that Martin probably had a feeling about them so on that day uh, the Beatles recorded Um, Besame Mucho, Love Me Do, P.S. I Love You and Ask Me Why. Obviously, none of these are going to be the final ones. The only two from the session that we can still hear today are um, on the anthology one. And um, they are Besame Mucho and Love Me Do from from that first session. But all the others were destroyed uh, because they knew that they weren't going to release them can you imagine no oh, I, I i just i imagine this person thinking oh, no, we're not gonna need them that's not important just throw in the bin <laughs> the like, things like in the
1: bin they would have done with many at the time
0: you know? no exactly
1: i like... think like a lot of those engineers were like probably older people they wouldn't have been interested. They would have thought this was like really tacky, naff music, you know, compared to what they were probably into.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> what we think of modern music today. Yeah.
1: Although it's provable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're so snobby about it away. a way, so. <laughs> <laughs> So after the recording, George Martin talked to the guys and, um, and told them about all the equipment that they would have needed as recording artists, and all four of them just listened to him in silence. When Martin finished his explanation, no one was saying a single word, so he decided to add, look, I've laid into you for quite a time. You haven't responded. Is there anything you don't like? The four lads didn't really know what to say until George Harrison exclaimed, Yeah, I don't like your tie. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's very famous. Yeah. Just, he said, Well, I don't like your tie for a start. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that could have been a horrible way to start a relationship with your producer, but no, as you but said, I think, probably I because George. His Har- background. Exactly, because George Martin was, yeah. you know. So they basically just had a laugh together yeah. straight away. And, you know, I guess there was feeling from the start there. Yeah. And he could see that obviously they had, there was something special about them. Like they were charismatic, etc. you know. And even if that test, musically speaking, had not been great, everyone in the room knew that there was definitely something there Can still. you
1: imagine the nerves though? Know? Yeah. Because it's such a big thing that you don't want to mess up, especially after already already losing one audition.
0: Yeah, it kind of makes sense that George was the youngest one, and so that.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can see it. You can see in interviews like that one I showed you where they're in Ireland, and he's like blowing smoke from his cigarette into the microphone, and then Paul that. like pushes his hand out the way and goes, stop, "George, stop it!" You know, <laughs> sort of like told him
0: off. I mean. <laughs>
1: They probably, they actually panicked a lot, I think, when he said that to George Marty.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would have, like, what the f*** <laughs> are you doing, you again. <laughs> <laughs> Although,
1: if he hadn't have said that, which way would it have gone? Yeah.
0: True, because obviously he instantly, like, you broke know, clicked the... with them. He broke the yeah. ice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> he knew his audience, I don't know.
1: <laughs> Everything they did.
0: It is so magical, just though. Came Everything seems you know. so legendary, like him... Like it's so, I don't know. It's like here like way mythology, you, it, you know.
1: <laughs> if anybody believes in fate, you know, there's no way that that wasn't gonna happen, you know.
0: No, absolutely.
1: This whole thing, it's like it's, we're just—I mean, we are geeks about it. Yeah. So we big it up a lot, but it's. it's but just, I'm not—not not
0: that much, you know. I don't think. Not. It's
1: less. It's less believable than Lord of the Rings, you know. (laughs) It's like that. It's more magical to me than that type of stuff.
0: But because it really happened.
1: I mean, one, I'm not into that type of stuff. But the thing is, like, yeah, it actually happened, and it's just that's the impossible
0: beauty of it.
1: It's the impossible dream, and they did it, you know. Yeah. And that you can imagine as they were growing up, or as they even started to get. Going in the bands, people telling them they were stupid, they were wasting their time. What a stupid thing. But you told me once that uh,
0: one time they came back from Hamburg and they actually...
1: Yeah, they were nearly breaking up.
0: Yeah. When was that?
1: It was when George got deported. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. The others stayed there a little bit before they arranged to come home. Mm -hmm. They came back separately. John came back by himself. I think Pete and... All might have come back together but they basically hadn't seen each other for weeks when they got back this is according to what i remember from i think mark lewison's book it was like weeks and nobody knew what was going to happen and reading that i was like terrified you know? <laughs> even though i know the end you know? i know the story Spoiler alert. Yeah. i was like frightened like no please <laughs> get back together yeah. You don't understand what you could be messing like, Can you up?
0: imagine if something happened during those weeks? I don't know. If someone decided, oh, you know what? I'm going to go in the army or whatever.
1: That's why, I, like I just said, there were challenges. There were a lot of things where it looked like it wasn't yeah. going to go that way. Yeah. But if, like I say, if You're you believe so in magical. fate, yeah. it, there was no way that that wasn't going to happen you know. Whew. It's like impossible. Goosebumps. It's such a big thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because we're music geeks, but it's such a big I mean, what would Liverpool be now without
0: No, exactly. That, you know? Because Liverpool, you know, is mainly mm-hmm. known for yeah. the Beatles and the football team, but certainly, and I'm sorry here to say it, football, you know, supporters, but music brings yeah, more I mean, beauty to a city and improvement. Big
1: football is localized you know you're not gonna get someone like in the middle of nowhere thinking about the Liverpool football team you know
0: well maybe I don't know I don't I don't I don't don't understand it (laughs) I just want to say that I don't understand it I'm talking about the city itself now like the all the improvement and all that changed for the city once it became and you know um a tourist attraction, mainly for the Beatles, like that really brought
1: Oh yeah, it brought a lot some... of money into the yeah. city. Changed it completely, you know. By the eighties it was going to ruin, you know. No, exactly.
0: 70s. Exactly. Because maybe people that are not from Liverpool or are not English, they don't know it. But um at the north, especially during the eighties, during the Thatcher uh, period, it was basically a wasteland. Yeah, and liverpool yeah. there are some pictures of liverpool in the 80s it is absolutely like you, you wouldn't recognize it now like the docks that became a unesco heritage heritage site not that long uh ago in uh, the early 2000s but in the in the 80s it was a complete wasteland no no yeah and 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 liverpool well, was like said that yeah
1: liverpool should go into managed decline
0: yeah so <laughs> there you go so if you ever visit Liverpool and you're not from here like you you can actually tell it's it's a city full of is, history art and people well, it's are still very it, much. Had,
1: it, it it's had so much importance in the past before No absolutely
0: like even historically obviously the shipping industry the docks, you know. yeah exactly the docks it are like massive. you know a testament of it but the thing is like today um thankfully because Liverpool is such a beautiful place, um, it is still possible to visit it and feel everything that, you know, all the inspiration that comes from here, you know, when I moved here, I really felt like this place had something special in terms of, like, it really inspires you, especially if you like music, so I don't, I don't know what it is, but I know that there is something and I'm not surprised that so many groups like that there was such thing as Merseybeat, Beat, you yeah, know. Yeah.
1: Well, it was mainly because they could get hold of rock and roll records, wasn't it? From the <laughs> people who were on the ships. But know.
0: again, everything happens for a reason, you know. Like yeah. there's like consequences. Oh yeah, there's like said everything. The- like everything is connected.
1: The more detail you go into with the Beatles story, the more unbelievable it becomes, you know.
0: Yeah. It was just everything right. A
1: set of everything becoming all together at one point in time, you know. Just the people in the band and then Brian Epstein. Yeah. Brian Epstein's a, such a fascinating guy, you know. He must and have had such a like... good drive. And for I doing feel things. like
0: people don't really talk about him em- enough
1: no maybe I although i know, absolutely I know I'm, film, I'm
0: absolutely yeah. aware that people talk about within the, the Beatles, Beatles like people, in general you know. the Beatles are very much talked about obviously uh so we're talking about like a topic that has been discussed the books have been yeah. written for ages and i know but within the Beatles like how much he influenced a lot of what was going on and how much he led the way like he he paved you know the path really
1: a lot and when you think he'd never done it before and he had like a roster of artists in the charts at one point you know Mm -hmm. he was an incredible businessman you know
0: yeah absolutely Back to the recording. So, I mean, it was a test. Technically, it wasn't really a test test because they already had a recording deal. But obviously, they had to know them. They had to see them for the first time, see how they operated. So, the four lads went back to Liverpool and on June the 9th, performed an evening show at the Cavern Club for the first time after months in Germany. It was, this was their first show after Stuart Sutcliffe's sudden death. And their first time at Abbey Road, so two big things for for these young guys, you know, for these young boys. And everyone there at the cavern was so happy to see them back there. So much so that the following 12 concerts in those days, in in the following dates, um, would all be at the cavern. So it must have been pretty crazy, you know, like they had just been in Germany, something that big as... The death of Stuart Sutcliffe also happened. They literally like flew there the day after. I don't know if they flew or they took the train. Uh, But, you know, they had been in Germany. Then rushed back to do their first recording session at EMI. And then back to the cabin where, you know, they used to play before as well. You know, it, it must have been interesting and weird like when you know everything is changing but then you're back to like a safe place in a way i guess
2: yeah
0: it must have been interesting and they were playing nearly every night in that period like i mean for years actually they've been playing basically every night and a month and a half later after the first recording session guess where they played on july the 20th (laughs)
1: warranted
0: warranted which for those who don't know it's
1: for Liam's. everybody, then. <laughs> Who doesn't know? Because nobody knows where Warren's in it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's the Liam's, the place where legends are born. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Astley. Oh, true. <laughs> Never gonna give you. <laughs> well, so Liam was born in Warren's. Edna Savage. And you are very proud that you can say that the Beatles actually played in your yeah, hometown. Of course. That is so cool. They played at the Bell Hall.
1: I played the on the same street.
0: Whoa, that's in cool. the
1: Irish club, which was probably there then. It's old, you know.
0: That must have been crazy for you.
1: The building isn't there anymore; it got knocked down years ago. Like anything. It, I to like,
0: say it, it knocked it down after you. Put
1: down. <laughs> <laughs> like anything interesting in this country just gets knocked down, you know. Oh. If it was America, all of these places would be shrines, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now I'm going to probably taint for you uh, this amazing thought of them playing in Warrington, because by then they probably already knew what they had to do next. Sack Pete Best. <laughs> it took
1: Warrington to do it. <laughs>
0: it was Warrington. <laughs> and Pete Best, bless him, he never actually gave them any type of problem, really it simply wasn't in the boys opinion and most importantly in george martin's opinion just wait a good second though, because
1: drummer. i've got a story that nobody would have heard <gasps> go on because it's impossible Who told you an old lady at a gig of mine that i was doing in my previous band mm-hmm. we were playing a golf club in warrington and at the end of the gig although i didn't actually hear it directly it was my bass player <laughs> my bass. my base player <laughs> the bass player <laughs> Um, so this old lady, she said, oh, that was great, us that was great, because we were doing all the old music, Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. And she told us that she was actually there that night when they played in Warrington.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And it's a fascinating story, because in the bell hall, which is where they played, apparently the, the corridor to get to the stage, where you had to load in the gear, was really tight. And this girl, she was watching them load the gear in. And she remembers distinctly John Lennon like complaining about how small the space was to get the gear in. And he was saying like, can you swear on this podcast? (laughs) Yeah. She was saying like, John was saying, how the fuck are we supposed to get all the gear down this tiny fucking corridor? You know, (laughs) and that is such a great... I can't
0: imagine him saying that. But nobody would
1: have known that, you know, that lady told us directly. And
0: that's such a little, you know, bit of life, just a little small
1: exactly yeah
0: piece of life
1: and it's in no anthologies anyway you know when you speak to people who were there you know and you meet these people randomly through which
0: is a very good thing about living here
1: yeah again yeah because it's so local like, you know
0: we re- we really you know met people we met the quarrymen.
1: yeah <laughs> you i, you I was the sound the- i was the sound engineer for the quarrymen. they used my pa you know
0: in um, in
1: the place where John and Paul met. In exactly,
0: the, for the anniversary last Saint, year. St. Peter's Saint Church, Peter's Hall Church yeah. in Walton. And for the anniversary, you, you played... Yeah, we
1: played there on the same... Yeah, they played...
0: Um, they opened for you, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And, the yeah, USARPA, and they used our PA. And they were the... still, like, most of the original ones. Yeah,
1: yeah. All of them played with with them.
0: Yeah.
1: And they asked... I was the sound man, remember?
0: Yeah, I'm yeah, Mr. Soundman. Where's
1: Mr. Soundman? <laughs> <laughs> it's me. <laughs> just incredible, you know. I know. I and that same night, you was next to John's sister, Julia,
0: and uh, Frida Kelly was there. Yes. Which honestly, for a person like me, I met me, Frida Kelly
1: a few times, and it's just oh, incredible. true. You I haven't to been Norway. on. I went to Norway on tour with Frida Kelly. <laughs> Anyway, enough about that. No, no,
0: no. But what I mean is, like, it's such a good place to be. Especially, like, for me, that, like, I grew up, like, just watching Beatles documentaries, literally printing the whole Wikipedia page and just putting it in, like, in a folder. And I had all these names. And now I actually met some of these people. and, And knowing that I actually met people that have seen the Beatles or have met them personally, it's just... The beauty of being here in Liverpool well, and I being saw, surrounded by like minded people.
1: I saw Frida recently, didn't I, in London? No. Oh, true, we were playing true. A, a 60s weekend. And she and...
0: actually told you that you sang really well. Yeah, didn't I was she? doing
1: Joe Brown's a picture of you and she came and said, That was really good. Really. And I'm like, and She
0: heard oh, what? the Beatles perform that.
1: <laughs> but she was like, Talk because she talks to us, you know. She said she's such she, she's a, nice, a very person. nice person, she's so great, Frida Kelly. um but she was just flippantly saying, I probably saw them about 200 times in the cabin.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> and they played that well, she, 292 She said times. it
1: like like as if you would say, oh, I saw some cheap eggs in Tesco. <laughs> <you know. laughs> like it was literally like that. Oh and we're God. all like in, like, in everyone around is like completely in awe of it, you know. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Of course.
1: but And to me, that night started out for me when we did that London Nogging. I just went there, I arrived by myself, sat in the lobby of the hotel where we were playing, just having a cup of tea, watching uh, the Richard Osman game show thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was by myself, and then about... 20 minutes later, half an hour later, the band turned up and then Frida Kelly came in and just sat with us. It always happens
0: when I'm home. Yeah, (laughs) she never comes with me. No, I'm always with you. The few times I'm not with you.
1: (laughs) She thinks I'm making it up. (laughs) It's incredible, you know. And it's just, I don't know, maybe we're just ultimate geeks, but... And we've no, gone, off, again, we've gone off into tangents. Can I see. just say
0: something, and I don't want to sound braggy, but if it was me still living in Italy and I heard these things on a podcast, I would be very, very jealous about, like, very envious about people I that would get be, to do if what I, we... if, I, if
1: I wasn't in a band that was doing this type of stuff, on it, and people told me, oh, yeah, I went on tour with Frida Kelly. Oh, yeah, she told me that I was singing very well. Like, what? <laughs> I'd be like, well, first of all, I'd think, yeah, all right, a lot of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what people will know, no, yeah. They probably will. I promise you it's true.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: And if you saw the dressing room where she told me that a song you'd think there's no way for you to kind of You know. wallpaper they're off the walls and everything. <laughs> Actually we have pictures to prove it so
0: Whoa So if you need them, just send me a DM. <laughs> we were
1: right speech bubbles liam you are great
0: (laughs) (laughs) but we were talking about a very dramatic event here they had to fire pete best so this was a tough decision not only because they were all friends which is quite shit
1: i think i've heard something different
0: (laughs) well you'll tell me but yeah, I also know that Bob Wooler the Cavins DJ strongly advised Epstein against the, against the decision stating that best was very beloved by the fans etc but still uh, he needed to go and uh, as the Beatles were def- definitely too scared to do it they left this horrible incumbency to the manager It happened. you're the
1: manager you do it uh, <laughs> it's like you're the I'm manager I'm paying you to yeah. do
0: it you do the dirty work And um, it happened on August the 16th, 1962. Brian Epstein invited Bess to the Nem's office and told him, the boys want you out and Ringo in. Bess was obviously in shock. He said, I consider myself as good, if not better than Ringo. And then he added, does Ringo know about this yet? And Epstein said he's joined on Saturday. Ouch.
1: Must have been awful for this
0: Imagine bit. how horrible. You get a recording deal, you do your first recording at EMI, and then they suck you.
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of controversy in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you know about this? I know from interviews that I've heard with Lennon. Must have been from later on, obviously. Mm-hmm. Where he said, we were always going to get rid of him. Because he was they considered him to not be very good. He was, at this point, not showing up a lot. He was missing the odd gig, apparently. Yeah. He was—he would never hang around with them. Apparently, he would always separate himself from them. Mm-hmm. You can hear it if you find, look for John Lennon talking about it. You can hear him saying about it. He said that they just needed a drummer that quickly to go to Hamburg. That's what happened with Pete Best. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Who knows? Well, he must have still there's, there's not quite enough, hard. There's, or... Yeah, there's not enough recordings of him. To know if he was to judge, to the door or not.
0: yeah, yeah, no, of course.
1: But apparently, on the Decca records, he was only allowed to play the snare and the, a and the cymbal, You know, I'm sure that's, that's, very, what limiting. This, that's yeah. very
0: limiting. That's very limiting.
1: if you listen to it, you can sort of you can sort of hear that. Mm-hmm. Again, these are all
0: they're very rudimental. The the Decca recordings, very. Simple. Yeah,
1: but I think with these stories, is you know, who's ever really going to know?
0: No, that's true. That's true.
1: Because I'm sure that Pete Best will have his own version of it
0: no absolutely and absolutely
1: I've, I've met people loads of people who say that he was better than ringo you know it's just oh and you get the opposite it's just i don't know what can you say about these things we weren't there and we'll never know
0: but the saddest thing for me is also that he also had to play with them that night at river park at the Chester. River Park Ballroom in Chester. Oh, apparently, but he didn't actually go though, did he? He didn't do it. You know who they chose? Uh, the Big Three's drummer, Johnny Hutchinson, played with them. Who that I've night. met as well. When Will
1: I say you stop, when I, when <laughs> I say people? when I say met, I met Pete I Best as well. I haven't met Pete Best. Oh. When I say um, meet, he was in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> at the well, Latham. still, still, <laughs> at the Latham you, Hall. Oh, in, you, you, um, you
0: just were in the same room with someone who played with the Beatles. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> at the
1: Latham Hall, that was in
0: the no. No, I seen Pete Best walking in uh, Matthew Street, and I was with a person that stopped him.
1: Oh right. When was that?
0: Um, twenty eighteen. The day Paul McCartney was playing. Actually. I was playing. So that I think, day. Oh, that's no, no, no. When um when he played um at the arena we both oh, went. Sorry. Yeah, We yeah. didn't know each other but we both went I and thinking um, of when
1: he played the philharmonic no 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 our claim to fame <laughs> like he couldn't get the cabin because we were there so he had to play the philharmonic
0: <laughs> yeah when he played the philharmonic with yeah. um james gordon yeah
1: we were literally playing that day the same time as he was playing
0: pretty crazy
1: like i said he, he had to do you the can club. say you
0: played with paul mccartney and all the other people in liverpool that we're playing
1: yeah we like i said uh, we always joke about it say oh he had to play the pub because he, he couldn't get in the cab <laughs> we stopped him from playing the cab yeah exactly and i'll hold on to that forever
0: <laughs> of course <laughs> that one um in chester was their first gig without pete best and interestingly enough ringer would play there in chester with them a week later on august the 23rd the same day john lennon and cynthia powell got married
1: her like, life was crazy. He, he
0: got married in the morning and did a gig in Chester. Which, who do, for who doesn't know, um, Chester in Liverpool is like an hour away.
1: Yeah. Which yeah, very close.
0: But he got married on the same day. He, he played a gig. Dedication. <laughs> that's that's crazy.
1: Can you and, imagine why well, it must have been like that? They're all in their early 20s. Yeah. This whirlwind of like excitement that was going on, you know? Yeah,
0: oh my God, and they, they didn't stop for years.
1: No.
2: Nah.
0: The first weeks without Pete Best were terrible for the band though. A fan at the cabin even headbutted George <laughs> in anger <laughs> and gave him the black eye.
1: And then <laughs> that did. same night he got run over by a bus. What? You never heard that? No. Yeah, he's he got headbutted for, prote- for sticking up for Ringo. And then in his words he's like And then I walked under a bus. <laughs> Great note for George. <laughs> he got hit Bloody by a bus.
2: Hell. <laughs> Like well, I said, there was always, like, chances... I do
0: think yeah. could have gone <laughs> exactly, wrong, you, you know? know. It's like the Destiny wanted to, you know, I, like, stop can you all Can imagine, this year, like... It was inevitable.
1: Like a fight between uh, death and God, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Death was like, I'm going to get in with the bus. <laughs> God's <laughs> like, no, this has to happen, you know. Exactly. Judge.
0: But what also happened, it was, like, for many of the next Beatles performances, the audience chanted, Ringo never, Pete Best forever. And I bet it was at the cabin because the cabin fans are always very dedicated.
1: <laughs> well, if you watch the cabin performance everybody knows, the some of the guy, and at the end you can hear people shouting, "We want Pete, we want Pete." Well, I've yeah, met yeah. that guy who you can hear actually, because it's apparently it's Jeff Nugent who was in yeah. the Undertakers. It was him apparently that was shouting, "We want Pete."
0: Oh my goodness!
1: And he was another great guy from another great band, another person good? that I've met.
0: That's It's just so mad. It's so mad here, you know.
1: It really is, because... Like, it, this the f- is
0: the place to be if you love this, if you love the Beatles.
1: Yeah, know? the amount of people that you meet, you know. Yeah. Like, the first time I ever played the Latham Hall, which, for people who don't know, is one of the original venues that everybody played. Beatles did it 11 times, I think. Yeah. The last time Well, you played was the Grosvenor Ballroom as well. Yeah. But the first time I went to the Latham Hall, Frida Kelly was there, you know. I just couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> Because the people that were there, so many of them are still so dedicated to this thing. You know?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And you can see, because now that obviously I'm more kind of in the circle, because I always yeah. come to gigs with you. And obviously, since I'm in the audience, I, cannot, I, I can I have time to look around me and see who is there. You see a lot of the same people, and they travel. They travel a lot. Yeah. Even if they are maybe in their 70s, they travel a lot up and down the country just to have that glimpse of you know yeah that music still and i don't think there's any other music that does that no there isn't
1: and unfortunately there never will be i don't think you know. yeah no
0: i agree with you There would
1: have been by now it's been long enough you know
0: but i'm happy that actually keeping um, that alive
1: <laughs> one of the guys that i was playing with at the weekend neil you know mm-hmm. he said a really interesting thing mm-hmm. like uh, it's 60 years now basically Yeah. since it all started Yeah, it's still such a big music that everybody's listening to.
0: It's massive still
1: Nobody will be listening to the music that's out now in 60 years. It's throwaway. away. No, but not
0: even in 10 years yeah, so, I'm not listening but, to know, what was like around, well, uh, well anyway. obviously I'm not but you know I'm not listening to what was around 5, five years ago either. Exactly
1: but he was making the point that in the 60s people weren't listening to stuff from 60 years previous either
0: that's true
1: this this magical period you know it's absolutely incredible it's just so and not just the Beatles obviously no 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 but rock and roll it's just something general, about that. like
0: the 60s The I count the 50s as well yeah, that, yeah. The, the end of the 50s probably when rock and roll started you know it's just so crazy and you know, as you said, like with the Beatles was destiny, and Ringo would play with them for the first time on August the 18th, 1962, at Hume Hall.
1: Hulme, I think you say.
0: Okay. Who knows? In Port <laughs> <laughs> Sunlight, probably people from Port Sunlight. If you're out there, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a gig for the Horticultural Society's 17th annual dance. Which wasn't a very flashy occasion, but was still a big success because it was full with more of the... uh, like There were more people than the actual capacity because Mm. the Beatles were finally playing with, you know, Ringo. Um, Who obviously, uh, people... uh, for those who don't know, already knew Ringo because he was with Rory Storm and Hurricane. Yeah,
1: Ringo was established before then. Really. No,
0: absolutely. He played Hamburg as well. He was there yeah. in Hamburg with them as well. But with with the Beatles, but obviously he was playing with another band. Um so then it took me a while, but I finally got to the to Please Please Me. Okay, we're here now. <laughs> it took us like an hour <laughs> to get here. So, Ringo's first session with the Beatles took place on September the 4th, 1962. After rehearsing for three hours, two songs were recorded. Love Me Do and... Can you guess what he recorded on that day?
1: Do you mean one of their songs?
0: It wasn't theirs. It was a song that people at EMI thought should be their debut single.
1: Oh, how do you do it?
0: How do you do it? Um, and obviously this one was a rearrangement of a song that had already been recorded as a demo by the Dave Clark Five earlier that year. They recorded it because the people at EMI asked them to and um, they actually did a rearrangement. As I was saying, they made it better. Of <laughs> um, they wanted it to be the Beatles debut single, but the four lads weren't convinced and fought for the right to launch their career with their original song, Love Me Do. However... However, (laughs) (laughs) and that's how the song was given to the Liverpool group, Jerry and the Pacemakers, which um, which,
1: made number one,
0: which made number one. Yeah, exactly. And they used the Beatles rearrangement, not the Dave Clark five one. And um, so Um,
1: Jerry rang John. (laughs) Mm hmm. And uh, said, you know, "Oh, how does that mate, we made to number one with that song, or something like that." You know, yeah. and John said a lot of expletives on the phone too. <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: I bet,
0: but I really defend their, you know, will to be. Yeah, of course,
1: because uh, if, like you say, if you listen to "Love Me Do," it's a weird song, you know. It is the, the fact that it says "Love Me Do," which didn't make sense, <laughs> and it's not the greatest of. I mean, I'm saying again. Like, don't stab me, Beatles people. I
0: adore the be- We adore but, the Beatles, but... You
1: can imagine hearing it from the first time, like we said before. It you was on the like comedy label. There's
0: nothing special,
1: No, really. you'd be like, what is this? You know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, we're not criticizing the of Beatles. Course. How could we? But yeah. I'm pretty sure Love Me Do is no one's favorite song. No. Like, You know what I mean? And uh, on that fourth of September, though, um, the Beatles recorded both songs. Their session started in Studio Two at seven PM, and they recorded both "How Do You Do It" and "Love Me Do," and "How Do You Do It." The version that the Beatles did, you can find it on Anthology One.
1: It's actually a good version.
0: I really like it, honestly.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what is a stupid thing to say! The Beatles did something good, you know. You know, it's like <laughs> it's obvious. actually a good version. Yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> it's
0: obvious. <laughs> next session was the uh, 11th of September, uh, it was the second recording session for Please Please Me. It, it took place basically um, a week after the first one, and this session lasted only 1 hour and 45 minutes, from 5 to 6.45pm. During this one, they completed Love Me Do and started working on its B-side, PS I Love You, where Ringo, after playing the tambourine on the first one, had to play maracas on the second one, He was livid about it, obviously, because, like, everyone was so excited about it being their first release, and he was barely in it, (laughs) so he was, like, very, very (laughs) pissed off about it, Um, and we'll tell you all about it. Probably everyone already knows that Ringo wasn't the drummer on those sessions, but don't worry, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, and during the recordings in on the um, 11th of September, they also taped a new arrangement of "Please Please Me," which was originally a slower bluesy song. But since George Martin didn't like it when he had heard it the week before, the Beatles uh, completely rewrote it and recorded it on that day, the 11th of September. And this is the version that is present on Anthology 1. The next thing on the Beatles' calendar was actually the release of Love Me Do, um, the first single, the debut single. So let's talk about Love Me Do a little bit, because even if the released it in 1962, October 1962, the song had been around for a bit. It was a song that Lennon and McCartney wrote in 1958 and believe it or not Paul was 16 when he wrote the main structure and John collaborated with the middle eight. This was also probably the first song that they have co-written and started performing it even in Hamburg. They knew it was a weak number especially after you do you know Chuck Berry, Little Richard (laughs) etc. And on the day of the recording it took them around 15 to 18 takes to get the desired backing track and then they proceeded to the vocals. But it was very interesting because at the beginning Lennon was the one singing the lead parts. the lead part being the love me do when everything stops because everything else besides that I think is mostly them together. But since he was also playing harmonica, George Martin just told him, oh, you can't sing and play a Monica at the same time. So he gave the lead to Paul McCartney. And he says that he can still hear the nervousness in his voice. Can you hear it? I can't hear it, but...
1: You can in the one with Ringo.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, that's true, because that's prior.
1: Because it's, it's even different the way you, you sing some bits. Like.
0: But, you know, the thing is also like... Paul didn't consider himself a good enough singer, which is absolutely mental if you think about it. But, you know, the singer-singer was was John uh, there at the time. Obviously, and that's, and that's not even mentioned George. that wasn't even given a chance, basically, by that time to actually sing lead. But Paul didn't think he was, you know, you he had what he... You, what you need to be a, a good lead singer
1: yeah but he was strong in the highs you yeah.
0: know that's true yeah. that's true that's true love me do was one of the few songs from please please me that had actually been recorded with pete best as well it's kind of
1: recorded by everybody basically <laughs> no
0: true exactly there's <laughs> so many different drummers but that version is slightly different from the final product not only because lennon was singing a lead vocal but if you listen to it you'll notice a different type of drumming both in the middle eights and the solo part which I don't, I'm not really a fan of, but probably because I know the final. Yeah. Something
1: yeah.
0: like that, yeah. But I'm not really a fan of because you I'm hear, just You hear like cargo
1: use... in the other versions, like he goes, Someone to love. You know?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, the lyrics yeah. are terrible actually, if you think about it. <laughs> you know, they're so basic.
0: Yeah, are, but if you think about it, like a 16-year-old wrote that.
1: Oh yeah, you've got to remember it's that, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that was like their first attempt. We, you put,
1: know? we put too much pressure on them.
0: On <laughs> a well, the 16-year-old Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, Bless them. So the song was recorded between the sessions of uh, September the 4th and September the 11th, 1962. And even if Ringo Starr was playing drums on the first one, session drummer Andy White...
1: Scottish guy, I believe
0: who was paid £5.75, by I mean, the
1: way.
2: Yeah, but that's, like a, that's, that's average, a lot average of money. Rates, you know.
0: um, he played on the second one, leaving Ringo completely devastated when George Martin relegated him to the tambourine. So basically, I've read that Ringo uh, thinks that George Martin did that because he had seen him in a take of, I think, P.S. I Love You, Uh, Play maracas with one hand and tambourine with the other one and he said this guy is not really professional but if you think about it like that one the one in september on the on september the fourth was really ringo's first audition with Hmm. george martin
2: yeah
0: and that must have been very underwhelming like very you know sad for him like i understand why he was livid about this situation not only because he had been replaced by andy white who was like a professional session musician um but also because like it was like not trusted by george martin to do a good job
1: yeah if you watch the told you which i'm sure many people have they talk about that you know mm-hmm. And, like, George Martin says, he's still never forgiven me to this day. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Fair enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he obviously apologized a yeah, lot no. afterwards. But <laughs> So, Love Me Do was released in the UK on October the 5th The release was so exciting for fans all over Liverpool that obviously most of the initial sales were concentrated in the area, and some people even suggested that Brian Epstein had bought 10,000 copies of the single.
1: Yeah, but apparently it was 200.
0: Still, I mean, 200 I don't think is going to impact that much.
1: Yeah, but it's around 200.
0: But I was going to say, I wouldn't be surprised if he did that. He would literally like no, he move did do that, mountains yeah. no, he for did. the...
1: He did do that, but it wasn't like 10,000.
0: Was- yeah, no, exactly.
1: He did the right thing. That's what you would do. you
0: know. No, of course, yeah. because that would improve the position yeah, in the charts. The day after the release of Love Me Do, they signed autographs in Witness, which... <laughs> I don't know why, but like I always find these things so humbling
2: because Witness humbling, is you know? is
0: very s- small. Like, it's it's a it's a little town close to Liverpool, between Liverpool and Warrington.
1: Yeah, it's a little place.
0: And uh, it's so crazy that the they Beatles... played there a few times, didn't you
1: know? it? Yeah. The venue that they played there isn't there anymore. I've forgotten the name of it, but I played literally on the same street as that venue in a pub called The Grapes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting.
1: Uh, yeah. I was made up, you know.
0: No, of it course a, a rough <laughs> It was a rough
1: pipe <laughs> They used to rent um, PA gear from Witness as well. Mm-hmm. Baron Epstein used to rent PA gear if they needed PA for a It's gig. just
0: so interesting that, like, the Beatles released. Really their first single and the day after they sign autographs in witness in two different music shops and this is extremely interesting also because they stayed in each place for like 30 minutes and these are two of the four only four occasions where they signed autographs like when it was arranged actually and the next two ones will be in january and december 1963 the first and nems the offices uh, for the release of Please, please me the single and uh, the second for a fan club in London. But they were concentrated basically just there because I don't think that would have ended up well. Like later in their career, they would have probably been like drowned yeah. by the crowd. It's just
1: great that thought. It's just great that thought of that happening and witnessing. You know?
0: I know. That's that's why I thought that that was very interesting yeah. because you know it's just again for a anyone small who doesn't place. know
1: out there. Yeah. Like, if there's any American listeners, listeners especially, it's the most underwhelming place. <laughs> but knowing that this happened there gives it this air of magic as well, you know? Yeah. Basically, any, almost any way you can think of in England, the Beatles have been there, you know?
0: No, that's true, because they played it's basically so every good. day for years.
1: It's so um, encouraging for any band.
0: That's true, that's true because they didn't have anything handed to them. And um, a few days later, they also travelled to London to try and convince journalists to feature their release. Like, they literally had to convince people. (laughs) In a few years, like, (laughs) it would have been, like, crazy even to think about, you know. And even if the Beatles had been playing in front of many, many audiences for years, By that point, it wasn't until Love Me Do entered the charts where it reached number 17 that they knew that they were getting somewhere. For George Harrison, one of the best moments was hearing Love Me Do on Radio Luxembourg at half seven on a Thursday night. He said that that moment really sent shivers down his spine and that from Love Me Do onwards, people at EMI were definitely more aware of their presence. Then they finally record the single. Please, please me. It's the 26th of November and the Beatles go to Abbey Road to dedicate three hours and 18 takes to please, please me. And at the end of the session, George Martin talked to them through the control room and said, congratulations, gentlemen, you've just made your first number one, which wasn't really number one, like in some charts uh, for some, I don't want to say charts, but like some newspapers. Uh, actually considered it like the top single of the week. But I think for them to reach a true number one, they had to wait until um, From Me to You.
1: Probably. I didn't realize it was out as a single.
0: I know, not many people realize that. But I think that um, Please Please Me is actually better than love oh me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I think PSI you is better than
0: love me do there you go you should have been there <laughs>
1: it really is you know it? it's got much more going on in it than love me do
0: and the 45 in the 45 um in the single that b side um was "Ask me why so a side please please me b side "Ask me why and it didn't Spoiled really
1: spoil listeners
0: no exactly <laughs> it, didn't really, it didn't actually reach number one on the official charts but as I was saying it scored very good, a very good placement in several magazines charts and it was so successful that after three weeks George Martin called Brian Epstein and he told him to bring the boys to the recording studio to record an album uh, because they were on tour with Helen Shapiro by that time <laughs> and then the day where the magic happened the day when the beatles recorded the whole please please me album all in one day so when people say that please please me was recorded only one day it it is true partly because obviously they already had Love Me Do, PS I Love You, Please Please Me and Ask Me Why, ready. But still they had to do 10 out of the 14 songs of the LP. So imagine having to record your first album. You're already super excited and nervous about doing it. But you're also knackered from gigging every day all around the country. And you have to record 10 songs in a day. Yeah. I mean, it's People should fuck
1: up who don't know their actual schedule for 1963 because it's madness yeah yeah, no, yeah 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 it's madness if you look up a book which actually my microphone is le- is resting on right now <laughs> by Mark Lewis and called the complete Beatles Chronicles you can probably find it somewhere online it literally tells you everything they did the yeah. recording sessions and live sessions right the way even through.
0: on BeatlesBible.com. yeah they Beatles have Bible, literally every single day Yeah. and they sit there. It is.
1: 1963 was wild in terms of yeah. what they were doing up and down the country and a- recording crazy. in the morning playing. Then going to Newcastle yeah, then like, going
0: back to Oxford. They or. would
1: record in EMI <laughs> in London in the morning. They would drive all the way up to Yorkshire or Newcastle, yeah. do the show at night, come back I'm assuming that night and record again in the morning. It was just they they earned what they had exactly
0: absolutely mad and to think that besides all these things they were still writing like they were creative enough like
1: oh on the on the tour bus exactly in the cars in the van yeah just incredible you know and people say musicians it's an easy job yes (laughs)
0: so on that day they used studio two and the work was divided into two separate sessions that by the end of the day became three that day's recording cost 400 pound and the musicians union also granted the Beatles seven pound ten shillings for each session the first session went from 10 o'clock till one o'clock the the song they started with it's crazy. Ten takes of "There's a Place" at 10 a.m. in the morning, which you, now, you have been, who, you have been trying to sing that because you want to add it to the set list. And, I've
1: been requested by the band. To sing. Yeah. Now, if anybody has ever tried to sing that as the lead vocalist at yeah, 10 a.m., yeah, but this is John and this is not a normal human being. <laughs> I'm convinced more and more i find out about them that they were actually either cyborgs or aliens from another one. Yeah, line. no,
0: exactly. It's impossible. <laughs> um, and then they did nine of I Saw Her Standing There, although they ended up using the first one. But the initial- Imagine how
1: pissed off you'd be. <laughs> Just one more take, boys. No, we're going to do it. We're going to use the first one.
0: But the initial counts come from the last one. So all the ones in between have never been used.
1: That's a a power play of the engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can get you to do whatever I want. We'll use the first take.
0: Exactly. Um, Obviously, they recorded more songs, but I'm talking about the ones that uh, took more takes here. Um, So... One interesting thing is uh, that while the engineers went on their lunch break, the Beatles decided to stay Probably in the at studio. Probably the pub, by the
1: way. Yeah, I read the that Road they had a pint
0: and a pie. That <laughs> was <of> the day.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the Beatles decided to stay in and rehearse the whole time, waiting for the second session. That started at half two and it lasted until six. Uh, they did five takes of A Taste of Honey, plus two overdubs of uh, Paul's lead, eight takes of Do You Want To Know A Secret, three takes of Lennon's harmonica in There's A Place, and uh, a take of the handclaps of I Saw Her Standing There. And the last song recorded in that session was Misery. The third session that There's was...
1: N- no need for that. It might have been a good song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the third session that was added la- later uh, because they didn't finish, surprisingly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was a lot of songs. Um, it lasted from half seven till 10.45. 13 takes of Hold Me Tight, which didn't even make it to the album. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
1: great song, isn't because it? Because
0: only two takes were complete and the other were just bits to be put together at a later date. But then these takes were destroyed, unfortunately, and the song would be recorded for the second album with the Beatles. Um, then they did uh, four takes of Chains, even though the first one was the one that they kept. <laughs> then they did uh, Baby It's You, that took three takes. And by the time they finished Baby It's You, it was nearly closing time, 10 pm. There was still one song to record, though. Um, so, obviously, I didn't mention them all, but at that time, there was still a, a song to record, though, and it had to be the one that closed the record. So, while drinking coffee, warm milk, and munching some biscuits, everyone settled on Twist and Shout. And since it was a very hard song to sing, they had decided to record it as the last one for the day uh, to avoid tiring out John's voice too much. So because Even though the,
1: it had, like a lot of tiring tracks no
0: exactly that. exactly but they really thought if we put that too early on yeah. he's not going to be able to sing all the other ones so john put a few throats sweet in his system and did two takes zooms
1: apparently they were oh called. yeah he even Zoops. knows
0: <laughs> the, the brand um, think
1: about that though and this is the shame about art in music
2: mm-hmm.
1: because because of the way people worked back then, where they had to get things done, and they had a little amount of studio time. Like now, the vocal on that record is considered like brilliant because it's it's, unbelievable. i mean he's he, you can tell he's in a lot of pain and it's tearing <laughs> yeah, up definitely. but at the same time it makes something of it you know and oh, it wouldn't yeah. have been the same without it. now it wouldn't happen today because they say oh we're going to have three weeks off and we'll record <laughs> it again it doesn't matter the album you had an album out five years ago you don't need another one until an, another 10 years <laughs> True. it's just crap you know Yeah, yeah in those yeah. days people just wanted to get things done and that's and I always used to say that in bands that I've been in, you know, when people think, oh, it's not perfect, it's not perfect, it's not perfect. No, but it's got it's got something to yeah. it, you know, it's got a light. Yeah, yeah, Because music yeah. is art. And in any art, you can look at it, people interpret it the way they want to interpret it. But when it comes to music, obviously it has to be in tune. But there's a degree of it where it has to be, like, human and a little bit on the edge, you know. And some roughness, especially,
0: yeah. like in Rock and roll, I feel that it really makes it. I always say to
1: you, John Lennon, the the best rock and roll voice that ever had, and he didn't even like
0: his voice. That's that's crazy. People can say what they
1: want about Elvis, but to me, no, John Lennon's got the best voice in rock and roll.
0: So, obviously, this one was definitely you know the ultimate. You know, I don't want to say test because we already knew that it was good. But this one is just amazing. And many people said that Twist and Shout is the closest that you can get on record of seeing the Beatles live in a way because of the energy of it, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, just, because I'm sure there was many nights that he sang that song where he had a cold and he had a rough voice. No, you know?
0: definitely. It
1: just so happened to come and he probably thought at the time, which is what I would think. Like, fucking. You know, what a bad luck! i'm recording my first album and now i get a yeah. cold and a bad throat yeah he did it he?
0: and he did it i mean what we listen to is the first take he did two takes the second one he had no voice left
1: <laughs> can you imagine what he said when they said let's try another let's just let's try another one there boy <laughs> <laughs> but i just love them but also you know? like
0: the engineers i read that like the day after they recorded that they went around to the other engineers working there at emi and they said have like listen to this and they used twist and shout and everyone was am- amazed obviously
1: and that's another thing like i was gonna say if, if you read the sleeve notes on please please me written by tony barrow which everyone will know tony yeah, barrow yeah, yeah. is like a somebody who worked with them but like obviously when you're promoting a record you're gonna write good you're gonna big it up in the writing but if you read it you can tell that in the writing that this guy was genuinely got it you know yeah he got what it was and it was instant with the Beatles it was just something completely obviously we're not saying anything different that anybody's not said before no of course It's just, there's just something about them. And it's, uh, in a way, it's artistic freedom because they were so from the north, you know. It's never happened really. Nobody came from the north in those days when it came to entertainment.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know it, the north is considered like, I guess, the rough part of England. Especially in those days. Forgotten part of England. The
1: workhouses of of England It was the north, you know. It was just industry. It was industrial. Nobody thought of it like London was like the arts. You know? Nobody
0: thought that any art but, uh, could come
1: out. Yeah. And if you okay. give people that little bit of artistic freedom like what they had. And in those days it was more strict, obviously, compared to like later on with Sandy Pepper, or whatever. That and it's it's everybody involved, like I said before, the the whole the whole scene of it. The engineers were willing to take a risk. The people who run the record company was obviously willing to take a risk because of these little risk-taking that everybody was willing to take in those days to see what happened yeah you know the attitude is well, but i guess just there was more
0: enthusiasm and optimism and that's why many people got a chance and yeah. then they happened to be great yeah. musicians
1: just that the fact that i've never heard that before but the fact that you told me that people were showing that record around yeah. the emi think it shows you that They'd never heard this before. Yeah, somebody was allowed to do something on a record, which was like what you would consider a bad take because his voice is knackered, but because he's such a good singer, singer and he can carry it, and he's been in a rock and roll band playing in Hamburg,
0: which we always playing all around, yeah. you know. Which we always say that it's absolutely magnificent what he did with Twist and Shout oh, because we I
1: mean today at the first time. Like I heard in
0: it. tune. But it's like it's screaming, like and are, it's like, so hard to control I your think voice.
1: That we kind of recently controlled screaming exactly, is John Lennon, yeah.
0: isn't it? <laughs> we're critics, music critics at home <laughs> on our own it's spare just, time
1: the more and more I get into it, the more and more I like it, you know, and it's been going on for Which years is so
0: so true, you know it's a it's such a special thing, the beatles, yeah. I don't know.
1: You appreciate it more and more as time goes on, you know.
0: Absolutely, and the more you discover things about them, there is always some kind of magic about them. You like know, I,
1: like I said about the other night when we were at the gig with the band in Down South, and we were just talking in the hotel bar afterwards after our gig, and we all got on and we geeked about the Beatles, and even people who are older than me who've been into it for years, you know, yeah. So st- it's not like
0: us romanticizing they, still something we never about lived. It. like.
1: This brand new thing you know yeah. everybody who's in the know of the Beatles th- speak about it like that everybody and that's what's so good about it the Beatles community when you get together there's such an appreciation for it you know True. it's like talking about loved family members you know it's like it's, a religion in it a it way is, yeah. <laughs> but another especially thing especially if you If you do play in a band, you know instrumentation. You know how to play music. No, You know how to sing. You you can appreciate even more then because you realize how how hard it is. Because you
0: know, yeah, yeah. Another thing that I found interesting and that actually like links to what you just said, it was like I don't know why. Like I find it kind of poetic, but after they recorded, it was already quite late, and uh, but they obviously wanted to hear the songs so it was past closing times and the engineers were like kind of looking at each other like hmm, i want to go home what are we going to do we're going to miss our trains you know and brian epstein said if you play back the to the boys i'll drive you home and he drove the
1: engineers so i didn't know that you know <laughs> i didn't know that but i don't i'm not surprised by it
0: no exactly it's just so poetic in a way.
1: You <laughs> couldn't write it. You, you literally, their story, you couldn't write it.
0: No, exactly. And in the meantime, um, between the recording and the release of the album, the Beatles recorded several songs. From Me To You, Thank You Girl, One After 909, Nine, What Goes On, which is crazy to me in a way because like obviously like I kind of consider like there's like some certain order for me in my mind, like and thinking that thank you girl or like from me to you well one after 909 obviously then was like they worked on it for a, a, a number of years or what goes on was that th- what goes on actually i think was in beatles for sale even like the the, the fourth so. album and yeah. um but they recorded them before they released please please me <laughs>
1: i didn't know that either
0: but then the album release, which is the reason why we're doing this episode today, 22nd of March 1963, Please Please Me is released in mono and in stereo on the 26th of April. It was released in the US on the 10th of January 1964 um, and by the label VJ uh, with the name Introducing the Beatles and without Ask Me Why and Please Please Me. Which is very funny to me. Like, (laughs) Obviously, they had the single Please Please Me. But it's very funny to me that the album is called Please Please Me. And it was released without Please Please Me. (laughs) Even if they changed the name of the album, obviously. Most acts um, didn't release albums back then. Um, They released most singles, obviously, as we said before. Not only because they might not have enough good songs to put into an album, but also because albums were quite expensive for teenagers and that's why they preferred uh, 45 RPM. Uh, But these songs were just good, where are you gonna put them, you know? So, um, George Martin um, really fought for this album and he actually had suggested the title Off The Beatle Track, instead of Please Please Me at the beginning. Oh,
1: Off The Beatle Track.
0: Off The Beatles
1: Track. Yeah, so like off the beaten track. which is quite interesting.
0: Yeah. And his first idea for the cover was taking a pick off the Beatles outside the insect house at the London Zoo. Which the London Zoo said, of no, we're not going to do that. It's not decent. <laughs> um, and the famous shot that I absolutely adore, that picture is so beautiful. Like four lads just full of hope. And they didn't know they were going to be the best Thing to ever happen to me at, at, at
1: the same time it's naff you know like it's just them yeah in a building block but again because this, the photographer which is
0: uh, can, angus mcbean
1: but even the photographer was going off the cuff you know he was playing it like shooting from the hip type of thing everybody around that time was going for it they were trying they were just like let's see what this is like yeah and that's what made it so great, you
0: know. No, exactly. So the famous shot was taken, as we were saying, by Angus McBean at the EMI headquarters in Manchester Square. And um, Please Please Me entered the charts on the 6th of April 1963 and it spent 70 weeks in the UK album charts, and it stayed at top position for 30 weeks from May the 11th. What an album, really and uh, on the night of the 22nd of march when they released please please me they played at the gourmand cinema in doncaster so imagine obviously from that night onwards as well they could play many of the songs that were on the Mm. lp as well Imagine like how it must be so crazy, you know, playing on the day that you are. I know I've said this about like literally every achievement, but imagine like being there, being able to play on the same day that you know that your first album is out.
1: I'm sure if you was at those gigs, you would say like if you were a road manager Mm -hmm. and you've seen every gig. I'm sure that you would notice the difference on those Oh, yeah, definitely. When they were really excited. You know? No,
0: definitely. Definitely. It's the energy
1: that you would have.
0: Oof, of course, yeah. So, finally, let's talk about the songs. Um, eight songs on this album were self-written, which was quite impressive, as we said before, considering the fact that most groups at the time didn't really... Write their own stuff. They relied on professional songwriters. Opening track. Is there a better opening track than I saw her standing there? It's just <laughs> I don't know. It just gives me it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, so McCartney had the idea for it uh, while returning from a concert in Southport, which again is a place that is very close to here. It's like about an hour away in Lancashire. So one day, John and Paul decided to skip school and complete the song in McCartney's living room in 20 Fort Lynn Road. They scribbled the lyrics on an exercise book from the Liverpool Institute. As if that was gonna be useful anyway. <laughs> uh, they completed it in September 1962 and an original version of it had no rhythm guitar and John played harmonica on it. I don't know how that would have been, honestly. I think
1: there's actually a recording in there. Is that? in the cabin yeah oh
0: and obviously as many know the bass line was stolen <laughs> and paul mccartney actually admitted it uh, from i'm talking about you um by chuck berry who didn't sue the beatles for it very for once <laughs> for <laughs> once. i mean he sued the beatles for come together but um for once no he didn't um and in the US, hear this, it was released as the B-side of Guess What Song? I Want to Hold Your Hand.
1: <laughs> I mean, how do you even choose which one goes on the B-side? <laughs> no,
0: yeah. I know, like, how can you even choose an A-side and a B-side? Like, you know, they, they should all be A-sides, really.
1: It's like Kev, who's in my band, often says, like, whatever song. And i will say, and that was just considered just an album track yeah you know exactly hell.
0: exactly <laughs> so next up is misery
1: how do
0: you <laughs> that is a song that um they started to write on january the 26th 1963 backstage at the king's hall in stoke and Trent, wow. which
2: is very interesting that it's Didn't called that. misery
1: and well that you know if, if again if anybody here has never been to stoke and trent
2: <laughs>
0: hometown of robbie williams
1: It will all make sense.
0: (laughs) So they started writing it there while they were on tour with Helen Shapiro. And then they completed it at uh, McCartney's house. They actually thought to give it to Helen Shapiro at first, uh, but her manager rejected it. And uh, so they gave it to Kenny Lynch, who was on tour with them Mm -hmm. and had a minor hit with it. And this one was uh, one of the two songs in the album that featured overdubbing from a recording session that the Beatles didn't attend. And I'm talking about the piano that was played by George Martin.
1: Some a nice piano he did as well.
0: A- yeah, yeah, really. It really adds something to it.
1: Well, the first part, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And the one note, it goes from that. The yeah. You know, and then, you know. Dun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which part does it do now?
0: <laughs> the only one thing. The only one
1: thing. Yeah. But without that, you know.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, he was great. He, like, yeah. you know, he had a vision. I, I said it before, and I know that this has been said by literally every single person that ever talked about the Beatles, but he really helped in... Um... Also,
1: I've heard John Lennon get a little bit um, ratty in an interview about that. Ooh. He says, everybody always says, so. well, if it wasn't for them, they wouldn't do this. If it wasn't for him, they wouldn't do this. Like, you no, know, we wrote the fucking song. We had the... We <laughs> it's were the... so pi- Trent. Yeah. <laughs> so you know this again controversy
0: i think i don't think that if it wasn't for him they wouldn't have done a good job i just think that
1: it was a you collective
0: know, yeah in a, exactly you know when people say like the beehive like mind something like the that good, the good i thing, think that he was in the same yeah, on the, the same good thing way that happened
1: was it became like a family quite instantly i think
0: exactly
1: and everybody involved closely really really was into it you know and yeah everybody wanted it to be and they right. believed in them. I mean, yeah.
0: how can you not? But at the time, obviously, they didn't well, know. Well, when
1: you hear him, like, saying he wasn't, like, that impressed, thinking, like he, <laughs> you heard these songs <laughs> and you weren't impressed. dare you! <laughs> <laughs> please, please
2: me. No,
0: no, I mean, please, please me. Uh,
1: I, know, I know it was slowly, uh, it was slower but when Lennon originally George, wrote it. Uh, when John wrote it. To- he was thinking of Roy Orbison, Orbison and yeah. he was like, please, please, you know, all that yeah, double, yeah. D- double use of a word, which meant two different things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but he was right to tell them to speed it up. And the bass in that just makes it for me, you know. Oh, yeah. Dum, Dum, d-dum, 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 d-dum. In fact, that was the first song where I realized what harmonies were.
0: Yeah, because Paul does. He does the mono, the
1: mono, the mono harmony. Yeah. And it's the first one, though, I actually was able to decipher the two notes, you know, when I first was listening. I was like, oh, oh,
2: I
0: can hear it now. Same, because I'm terrible at harmonies. If you don't know Liam, he's absolutely great at harmonies. You can even pick harmonies from Beatles songs that they didn't do.
1: If only I was in the Beatles. (laughs) That's the only thing lacking there. so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Show off. And it took me a while, you know because I was surrounded by older musicians who knew all these things and they would tell me to practice and listen to these things and that was the first one I was singing it one day in the car and I remember thinking oh shit I can hear it I can hear the separation you know yeah, yeah. and to people who maybe don't know that or people who've been through the same thing when you first figuring out how to sing and singing harmonies you don't even think when you listen to songs as a kid you don't even think about harmonies or anything no. like that you just hear the noise that comes out of the radio
0: yeah it's a but, hole yeah that is delivered yeah. to your ears basically. but when you actually
1: start to be able to de- decipher and separate things it becomes so much more exciting
0: i'm still waiting for the moment i'm gonna be able to sing harmonies um, you can decently. hear harmonies though. of course i can that's
1: what i mean like it's when but you it's first start to be able to It's like <laughs> it's like a dog whistle. <laughs> like something happens, you know, and then you decipher the whole thing, and it's a different experience as a musician to hear. No, definitely. In fact, people have asked me that in the past. Like, what's it like? This like people who like music but don't really know anything about the technicality of music, mm-hmm. just passively like music. Not passively, because they're into it, you know, but they don't know anything about no, the, the technical side. But mm-hmm. like, they'll say to me, like, if they show me a song that they really like, they'll say to me, this must be so fascinating to you. Because you can, you know what's going on. Yeah. And it actually is.
0: And, you and and know, people while, that don't it, play, for example, don't know whether a song is hard to play or not, for example.
1: Yeah. For a while, it ruined it for me because I was so into listening to one thing in the song that you're not listening to as a complete piece.
0: True. I always tell myself, oh, this time I'm going to listen to the whole... It's like when you close the door and then you reopen it and you want to have like a good look of like what a person from the outside would get of your house, you know?
1: But at the same time, you can enjoy it in a much deeper way because you'll take something about one song that you like the most... And you can follow that one thing all the way through the song, whether it's a guitar, line-up, drum And line. at the
0: same time, it can inspire you because once you're able to break it down, then it can inspire you writing song, to oh, course, songs, to write songs. Have you ever taken anything from the Beatles in particular?
1: I don't know if i Yes, actually, but um, not so much directly, but it's more of a feel thing because yeah. like when i was writing songs for the the second band that I was in, original Replica, yeah mm-hmm. like i was writing with the feel of early 60s liverpool if you know what i mean mm-hmm. and not that i was trying to make it sound like early liverpool it's just i i was imagining myself in that time with yeah. the feel of it that, that was excitement. your
0: intention yeah yeah
1: and when i'm writing i'm thinking of bright sunny like spring mornings in liverpool you know yeah, the things that you actually think about when you're writing the song is almost got nothing to do with music, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a feel about what you were. I can't really explain that, but if anyone's even interested, go and listen to <laughs> "I'll Never Say I Love You" by Original Replica on YouTube,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you'll hear a lot of sixties influence there. Oh, definitely. In fact, there's a line that's taken from a Beatles song that I don't think ever was on an album or anything, but a "Friend says i do love will mean a lot." When she says that she loves a you, lot. that means a lot. Yeah, so in the middle eight and that it goes, Love can be deep, deep inside. inside. Love can be suicide. Well, I sort of took the first part of that. It goes, Love can be deep inside. I know your love won't. So I, you know, just that mm-hmm. first line, that's where I got that from. But it's like an amalgamation of a lot of 60s stuff. No, of course,
0: on. because you absorb it.
1: But it's on YouTube if anybody wants to listen to it. Hey,
0: hey. <laughs>
1: original replica. I'll never say I love you.
0: Again, I'm not, I'm very unbiased here, but it's very good. <laughs>
1: also, we did a song called Lucy on there.
0: True. So, after Misery, the next song is a song that you love and hate, Anna.
1: Do, but the reason why I love and hate <laughs> it is because... <laughs> I can sing the verses very, very well, but then I've got no chance when it comes to the middle age.
0: <laughs> it's very, very hard. Can you imagine, like John sang that one, sang "There's a Place," and then sang "Twist That's and That's why shout. I
1: think he was an alien. <laughs> it's impossible that a human can achieve these feats. That no, he did.
0: exactly. So Anna, go to him. Anna,
1: brackets, go to.
0: Him. Yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful song written by Arthur Alexander in 1962. Which is one of my favorite.
1: He wrote ah, Soldier
0: this, of Love as well. Love beautiful song. Yeah.
1: And I think he, he wrote Where Have You Been All My Life. It's a beautiful song. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Just these great, great songs, you know.
0: Yeah. Such a good songwriter. And and that's why um it had been um in the Beatles set list from its release, because it was just released in nineteen sixty-two and John absolutely loved it, you know. Um Then we have another song that wasn't written by the Beatles, but was written by Jerry Goffin and Carole King. Yeah, that Carole King. I actually did an episode all about her. And Uh, that Jerry Goffin. And that Jerry (laughs) Goffin as well. I did an episode about Carole King, and I talk about Jerry Goffin and all the songs they wrote together. Um, So check that out. And they actually wrote it for the cookies the previous year, 1962 again.
1: The cookies said they were taking the biscuit.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. And who sang the vocals there? It was George who sang the vocals. Very, very nice performance. And another performance that was absolutely amazing, it wasn't Lennon McCartney, it was the following song Boys. Yes. uh, Recorded in one take <laughs> oh my god well, this it, is the thing again yeah.
1: like Ringo to me has got like a little bit of the Lennon feel in his voice yes like that raspy, exactly
0: yeah that broken like, up valve you know, on scratchy, yeah. tilt, you know. that you can tell even I like from I want to be your man as well yeah um and it's the first song uh the first ever recording actually that featured Ringo Starr on lead vocal Oh my God, such a beautiful song. It was written by Luther Dixon and Wes Farrell. And it was the B-side of Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Which, by the way, was written by Jerry Goffin and Carole King. <laughs> um, and obviously it was written uh, for the Shirelles. Um And Ringo always sang this song, even like when he was in Roy Storm and Hurricanes. And um, uh, he actually never really thought, no one really actually thought about the... Lyrics that was like from a girl's point of view, so but well, he...
1: they were brave like that, you know. They were doing no, exactly. that was
0: very revolutionary because they were valid, they were <coughs> nice songs, which they were, honestly. They
1: did is to Love her, which was Tanahoe Mr. Love. Oh, yeah.
0: that's just such a beautiful song, as well, you know. And um, oh my god, I love this song. It's probably, I don't want to say my favorite from the album, but it's up there, it is up there, honestly. Boys is such a beautiful song and Ringo oh my god again
1: anybody that you know tries to say Ringo couldn't sing go oh, and please. Just, just have a go at singing that no, song first like of all he did,
0: singing know. and playing the drums at yeah, the same yeah. time yeah yeah have well. a go
1: at doing it like he did have a go at singing it like my he did it my god know. it's quite a performance
0: it is absolutely amazing and again since it was you know they got it in one take i feel like it's one of those again that gives you a feeling of like first of all how tight they were how
2: well, they were playing but that even like night, you know? exactly
0: even like that was what they were playing live yeah, yeah. can you imagine hearing that live you know oh my god
1: just a different time
0: and the next song is ask me why which we know was the b-side of uh, please please me
1: and it's a pain in the ass arrangement wise to play in back. <laughs>
0: It was inspired by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, What's So Good About Goodbye and was written in the spring of 1962. It was recorded during the first recording session in June 1962, but then obviously that uh, tape was destroyed. God, how
1: how did that not prick up the ears of these people who were, were recording them? I don't
0: know. I don't know. But then the one that we hear is from November 1962. But yeah, it's a, it's a different, I guess I feel that Please Please Me, although many people actually don't consider it between like the best albums by the Beatles, it already gives you some kind of a, of idea, like how versatile they are, because they can play something like Boys, then there is something like A Taste of Honey, and then there's something like, I don't know, like Please Please Me, and I, I don't know.
1: Maybe it was because the standard was higher then anybody who made it to the point of getting a record out was fucking good, you know, usually. Yeah. There was no escaping the fact that you couldn't sing in those days. So anybody who made it was pretty good. Yeah. So the standard must have been that high that it was like nonchalant for record producers. Yeah, they got quite snobby. (laughs) Yeah, you know, yeah. Everybody can do harmonies, you know. But in this day and age, to hear it is like, so striking because it's you don't hear it anymore no where do you ever hear like complex harmonies or decent arrangements that's
0: so true and the next song is i don't know i just love it we've already talked about it please please me i i just love it and it was written at mendips john lennon's and mimi's house he as as you were saying he loved the double meaning of the word please and um he said he remembered the day and the pink coverlet on the bed when the, the he wrote it hmm?
1: he says "Ida down which was like the thing that we would call it in those days all right okay if you, you can find that on youtube as well if you if you type in listeners if you type in um john lennon on the beatles songs you'll find uh, people who have made videos ways in interviews segments about talking about the songs and how they were written very interesting mm-hmm. he says that it was written in the other bedroom in mendips Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in menlove avenue and he remembers to pink Ida down on the bed Uh the fact that he even said that he didn't have to say that you know
0: no but it creates that image like you can't think of him like sitting (sighs) on the bed and it's just i don't know and he obviously as you were saying he was um inspired by only the lonely by roy orbison and he wanted to try and write something similar. And that's why it was a bluesy slow song at the beginning. And- uh, I just
1: it... can't believe it. Like for you, for you, it's the same. We go past that house all the time because we live in- We go to Sainsbury. We go to same <laughs> and we go past that house all the time. And because it becomes bigger and bigger for us, like the, like I said before, the longer time goes on, it becomes more and more impossible.
0: I feel like the fact that like we're always together because obviously we live together and we are a couple and uh, obviously because of talk like about this often. no but obviously the job that you do what i do as well like we're always involved with music but the fact that we have constantly each other to talk about these things we yeah, kind of yeah. fuel each other off in uh-huh. a way but
1: even with which the, is beautiful again though. it's the same with the band we're the same you know yeah Well oh, you speak to the band as well
0: no exactly it's, exactly it's
1: a group of fans that are absolutely in awe of it and every it's time you pass so that house you know i've been in the house as well yeah same which same. we'll have to do yeah, yeah, together yeah, yeah. but just it, it gets more and more impossible you know because the longer time goes on the bigger the yeah, legend sometimes i can't becomes. even believe it
0: like when i'm in a place and they tell me you know the beatles have been I know, here you know i'm like nah, that can't be real because it's like so detached from like yeah. reality I can't really see it as something that really happened in that place.
1: The longer it goes on, the bigger the legend becomes, and the harder it is to believe it. You know, no, absolutely. Like I can't even imagine that he was in that house. You know, John Lennon was there in that house writing that song. You know, I just can't. I know it's. I know know it's true. true. He said it himself, but I can't even picture him being there. You know, in that setting, I cannot get my head around it. It's
0: impossible. And then they recorded the song, and the version can be heard on Anthology One. And the main difference, obviously, besides the slightly faster speed of the one that would end up on the album, is the lack of the harmonica, which is so you know, it has like to be there, it's yeah. so important that, and also the backing vocals on the in the middle eight are not there in the version that they first recorded to, obviously, um, show a, George a, Martin
1: is that available to hear
0: the version that was already sped up um after george martin told them not to do the slow one it is is on anthology one
1: you can tell why they worked on the vocals there though because the please please me at the end is very weak it's just paul going please, yeah. Please, we, woo, yeah it runs out of yeah no of exactly again for some reason whenever i think about it early Beatles I think about spring mornings with clear blue (laughs) skies in Liverpool I don't know why that is but that's what it makes me feel like
0: that's true though like now that you mention it because it's so fresh it's so new it's like a spring morning so yeah you feel so excited and there's enthusiasm like for the first time you see the light you know
1: it's just that's what it makes me feel like all the time and that's how I used to write a lot of songs you know yeah like I just get into my head of the feel of a crisp spring morning with a, not a cloud in yeah. the sky you know and but in this particular case i think even though it's recording in london i think of liverpool and
0: yeah yeah well it was written in liverpool oh, rearranged yeah. in liverpool yeah and i love that john laughs at some point in the recording yeah, because in one of the it, the last come on come on. is that <laughs> that one
1: no it's not no it's the actual one yeah he's um uh, because it goes I know I never even tried Instead of, I know you never...
0: You know. Ah, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. He,
1: he messes up, and then mm-hmm. he goes, come on, come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, then next up is Love Me Do. So we already discussed that one, but the um, one after Love Me Do is P.S. I Love You, which was Love Me Do's B-side. It was written mainly by Paul McCartney during the stay their stay in Hamburg in 1962. And, um... That's why it was even played um, with Pete Best on their first session, but um, remade. But maybe, was re-
1: maybe he was thinking of his around that time girlfriend dot.
0: Actually, I read something about it and he said that he it wasn't based on reality because he never even wrote a letter to his girlfriend, which honestly, since Paul McCartney is Mr. Public Relations, he could have like romanticized it a little I bit. Know, but he did. <laughs>
1: Most of his songs are always like made up stories. So.
0: True, true, true. Um, and, uh, So they recorded it with Pete Best because obviously it was written in Hamburg. um, But it was remade in other 10 takes um, when they recorded Love Me Do. So Andy White is playing drums on uh, this one and Ringo is playing Maracas. And obviously, as we know, was absolutely (laughs) pissed off about it. The next one is Baby It's You by Bert Bacharach. Uh, who wrote the music, Luther Dixon and Mac David then wrote the lyrics. And it was a hit for the Shirelles again. And it was a staple of the Beatles live sets for those from those years. L- that's another one, um, together with Misery, where George Martin added uh, Celeste later um, in the guitar solo. Like that instrument that sounds like a xylophone a little bit.
1: All oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then we have an interesting song. Do you want to know a secret? Which usually when you are performing with the band is the first one that you sing. <laughs> um, so it was written by John right after his marriage. Um, and Brian Epstein gave him and Cynthia um, his secret apartment that he kept for his affairs. And that was the secret, even though I I read that for some people, the secret was the fact that John and Cynthia were
1: married. No, no, it's not that at all. Mm. That's not, that's completely wrong. Yeah. Because if you listen to an interview where he talks about that song, it was something like an old... Uh, something when he was growing up that... yeah
0: so his mom uh sa- used to sing to him want to know a secret promise not to tell that was from a song um from um that was called wishing well featured in the in disney's snow white That was it. Yeah. That was it. and his mom used to sing to him and that's what he thought yeah. and then obviously he linked to the sick the I've secret never, i've never
1: heard him say that but mm-hmm. like i've never heard him mention that uh, the secret but it's it's oh, quite it makes sense though yeah yeah
0: it makes sense it makes sense and um he didn't write it for george originally even if george actually sings it uh but he thought he could do it because george by that time wasn't really a strong singer because yeah, he yeah. never like you know had the opportunity to sing much and that was i don't want to say too simple because i don't think it's that simple no it's not of a that song. Easy what do sing. you think
1: no you've got some for me at least there's a lot of pushing in it at places mm-hmm. you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a laid-back song to sing.
0: No, exactly. It wasn't. But the Beatles weren't the only ones to do it. Lennon also gave it to another of the groups managed by Epstein, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. uh did not when... mention him. <laughs> <laughs> for secret reasons.
1: <laughs> Although I used to play in a club in Liverpool called the odd for club mm-hmm. and Apparently, uh, Billy J. Kramer, in his early days, used to practice there.
0: Oh, That's interesting and what is crazy is that like the way he got the song was like from a demo that John recorded in a toilet in Hamburg and at the end of the demo because it was the only quiet place there and at the end of the demo you could hear John flushing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wish that demo was available.
0: And no they, they don't know where it is. I wish it was available, though. I mean, it must be hilarious. must have been hilarious, honestly. Then the next song is A Taste of Honey. It was a tune by uh, Rick Marlowe and Bobby Scott that also became the title of a 1961 film. Um, The first vocal version of it... uh, Which is a great film, by the way. Oh, I've never seen it. It's very good. The first vo- vocal version of it, um, because before it was mostly instrumental, it was released by Lenny Welch in September 1962. And that's the one the Beatles used as a reference. And uh, Paul l- absolutely loved it. His, you know, his vocal performance there is great. And ex- especially the harmonies are so beautiful as well.
1: Again, all of these songs when you're growing up in bands, and if you're not really that into the Beatles, not that I never was, but there was a point where I was like, "You grow up with them and you take them for granted, you know." Mm-hmm. And they sound simple to listen to them, but if you try to, if you try to do it properly,
0: yeah, because it's you hard. recently added it to your set list as well. Yeah, a yeah. taste of honey, and honestly, you, you sing it really well. But you have to have very strong and enough singers in your band yeah, yeah. to do a song like that, which is not always the case.
1: When I first started to try and play Beatles stuff, he's coming at it from the mindset of thinking it was simple. Mm-hmm. What a surprise! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you no,
1: know, because it's not simple at all, really.
0: No, that's true. And talking about songs that are not simple at all, the next one is "There's a Place." Which, again, I want to say that they recorded it first thing in the morning. (laughs) It was co-written at Paul's house. John wanted to do something Motown sounding. And Paul was inspired by Somewhere, a song from West Side Story. And this was an attempt to a deeper lyric. Because the place that they talk about is not really a place where you could go with your lover or something like that. But it was about
1: the mind.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I never thought about it like that before until recently when I've heard people speaking about it. And it's so interesting when you think... Especially considering days. how
0: young they were. And, and again, in those, in those days. days. Nobody
1: spoke about stuff like that in the song. No. It was all moon, June, you know.
0: Exactly. I mean, do we need any more reason <laughs> to love them and think that they were revolutionary?
1: Anything that you can think of, actually, in modern music has been done first by them you
0: know no exactly
1: you'd be surprised at how much they did first not us I mean I'm talking to the listeners who don't know it's probably loads of Beatles like people like that. I'm not surprised I know everything
0: (laughs) no exactly but you know it's just so crazy that I don't know it's even people that don't know much about the Beatles can appreciate them but once you learn so many things it just makes sense that it was them because they were just geniuses and the last song of the album as we were saying before is twist and shout a number
1: say that our kev our bass player in shakers does an excellent version of that yeah really good
0: do you need any more reasons to go and (laughs) check out the shakers (laughs) but you know twist and shout is amazing a very famous number by the Isley brothers and probably that's why they chose it because, I mean, it had been actually in the repertoire yeah, for a... quite some time. Even uh, again, they kept it there until 1965. Anyway,
1: again, um, think about the Beatles when they were before they were getting a record out, they were they were trying to get people to dance. They were playing things that were in the chart. Of course, you know?
2: of
0: course, exactly. They were so
1: performers, you know, if you listen to everyone, probably knows this interview, but it always fascinates me to hear like a little quote from John. Lennon where he goes. We were performers in the clubs in Liverpool and Hamburg, and there was nobody to touch us in Britain, especially when we played straight rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And he always says that their best performances were never recorded. And to somebody who's like a real Beatles fan, it's like, you know, give <laughs> you shivers. It's like, why weren't they recorded? <laughs> I want to hear that, uh, You know, as I close as right. you can get, it's probably the Hamburg recordings. You know,
0: yeah, the bootleg as well, the yeah. the ones at the Star Club. Yeah.
1: Because they had a really decent PA set up by somebody. I can't remember who it was that set the PA but it was like well advanced. It had reverb and everything, you know.
0: I know. And, you know, again, just to wrap it up, because we've been talking for nearly two and a half hours, (laughs) which honestly, it just flies when you're talking about the Beatles. But, I mean, let's just consider it again. First song, I saw her standing there. Last song, Twist and Shout i mean people must have thought what is going on i mean i'd love
1: to have been around at the time to experience it as it was brand new yeah because it must have knocked you out you know imagine hearing that brand new as a teenager it's jesus christ (laughs) it's
0: i don't know i can't even describe it because obviously hearing it
1: i'll never know because i grew up with that you know
0: no for me it was later on I discovered everything by myself yeah but hearing it when it's already been released for like 50 years it's different
1: I think that maybe imagine hearing
0: it on the radio or
1: I think uh, yeah but there will be like a little bit of a generation gap like um, kids now who were born in the early 2000s probably there's a lot of people who probably wouldn't have heard of the Beatles you know
2: oh my god
1: because their parents wouldn't have been into that yeah. And their grandparents. I think we're just... like
0: I think though, in a way, that might actually even create a bigger
2: um, group yeah, well, of fans.
0: No, because will do That's it'll, the it'll thing, like you feel like thing, you, know? you discovered it, it wasn't like handed to you. Yeah, you like it. your parents. You you say the cabin, it. you know. There are so many. For everyone out there that has never been to Liverpool, and has never been to the Cavern, or even to, you know, um, one of those concerts of, like, cover bands or something like that, you wouldn't believe how many young peoples we see at the Cavern that know every word to every and single song. And when we song. say
1: young, we mean, like, early teens. You know, yeah. Get it right from the early teens. At least it looked like that to me. It, <laughs> it feels old. <laughs> But you know, and it's another thing that I just thought. of When do you ever hear anybody say, "I used to like the Beatles, but I'm not a fan of"? No, on them. come on, it's, you that's never not hear possible. That. Because once you're in, you know, you. But in. even
0: when people say like that they don't like the Beatles, I'm like, they did so much stuff that at least a song. We will spoke be... about this a lot of times. Yeah, and
1: most of the time it's people trying to be pretentious, you know, yeah. trying to be like, I don't know because that's gone. also
0: a thing i noticed here in liverpool though there are some people oh, that actually a lot think of people. it's cool it's like not almost like almost resentful
1: like oh just, i don't like the beatles
0: like it's too mainstream you know but it's but, obvious that music wouldn't have been the same without the beatles and even people that are not really into older music like we are
1: just like and it's, it's
0: whatever like, you're listening to today I mean, has been influenced it's by fair them. to
1: say that, and i used to get annoyed at this when i was younger but i don't get annoyed anymore my people used to say, if there was no Elvis there'd be no Beatles I mean it's oh. <laughs> But now, obviously that's true. That's you know. true. They were so influenced by these people from America.
0: Yeah, Elvis, um little Richard. Well little Richard did a lot for the Beatles as well. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Chuck Berry even, I think a- you know
1: buddy holly because he they buddy knew holly that oh they, my god see they course. knew that he wrote his own stuff you know
0: oh absolutely
1: and it was fascinating to them because even yeah, saw... the
0: crickets the beetles you know yeah <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> but they were just lucky bastards really you know all of them who were around in that time even as even as a passive listener who worked in a factory
0: yeah 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 so we're very 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 jealous of it everyone is. that got to live in that era but don't worry we are keeping that music alive
1: yes and it's ongoing and it's
0: and i, I follow a lot of younger girls know, on instagram even more and it's now. so beautiful you know, the vintage scene's bigger now than it yeah ever has it been. is beautiful really because you can tell that they can understand quality and that's so yeah. good even just
1: going back to my teenage years it was so rare to find anybody that was interested. In I mean,
0: it. you're talking to me, t- t- let alone teenagers, but in Italy. I know, but imagine how disappointing <laughs> it,
1: Imagine how disappointed it is when you live right near the place.
0: Oh yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: And still, nobody knows what you're <laughs> talking about. But oh
0: my god! But today, today I feel there's there's hope. There's hope, and uh, I'm really happy about it I because mean, we're still. I mean, we were born late, but we're still.
1: It's sort of good in a way. Yeah, it's a consequence of music being so shite for so many years. <laughs> the young people are so desperate, you know, to yeah. hear something. That I think these younger generations now are quite hopeful they'll keep it going. Yeah. Because when I first came to the cabin when I was like 19, I was probably the youngest person there, you know. And now, we're but probably now the it,
0: oldest. <laughs>
1: not far <laughs> But you get the point. You see a lot of, like we said before, it's hard to gauge from our age point of view but they look like 18s yeah. like 14s. Yeah, 15. yeah, no, absolutely. And they know all of the words. To even, the rare even ones. Even to the
0: ones like um
1: the BBC stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'll They're get just, you and or so you know. It's
1: so satisfying to think it's not ending with us, you know. Because there is that fear that these things are going to disappear into them. Yeah,
0: because you feel still lucky because you're like towards the end of it in a way because Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are still alive Kev,
1: our bass player always says to me and Tom which is his son um, it could be even in 10 years time you might get people who are new fans to the Beatles and literally it could be like 10, 15 years and all of the people associated with that area will be gone You know. yeah and we've been lucky enough Especially me, because I've been close to it with playing in bands.
2: No, exactly. To
1: meet and speak to all these people that were actually there and actually directly involved in it, you know. And at some point in the future, when younger people are interested in the Beatles who are well past the era of anyone that's even left alive, we will they're going like to come to us yeah. and say, oh My God, you actually met these people, you know. Yeah. And then the story will continue. We will, and actually, that's another thing that Frida Kelly said to me in the dressing room. She said, it's so good to see young people. She didn't put quotes, which was quite uh, nice of us to do that. <laughs> but she, she said, it's so nice to see young people carrying on this music. You know?
0: oh she actually God. said that to me. I think we can wrap it up here, actually. Did, did you have anything else to say?
1: I've got loads to say, but <laughs> we'll be here all night. You know?
0: We could stay here forever. We should do forever.
1: One. You know, there's... So many anniversaries of the Beatles, you know.
0: Exactly like every year we're gonna do (laughs) one. Um I really hope that um people listen to this episode in its entirety. I know it's a bit daunting seeing like
1: (laughs) I I don't know. I know, but it's full of energy. You feel I hope hope people will get how much it means to us even after all the years of liking it, you know. Yeah. It doesn't tail off. It doesn't
2: exactly it's getting
1: getting more for me especially recently like I said before the longer it goes on the more it becomes like this big thing to me
0: exactly so I just feel that I just hope that people felt like this was a conversation with like friends like like like-minded people because I really want people to feel that way because that's how I feel when I'm like talking both in person and even online to um, people that love the Beatles because it's such a community. You feel like you're in your family in a way.
1: You yeah, know? and it's like a release when you find someone that you know is on the geek level. Because that you're there at. are
0: so many people that say they love the Beatles, and but then they, they say, don't oh, really know the Beatles. I know.
1: Oh, that one, "Let It Be." You know,
0: <laughs> which fair enough. It's a beautiful. Yeah, they're song. all great songs, but you but know, there the, the is there's a level yeah. of geekiness. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> like john was wearing a green jacket whilst he recorded oh the harmonica you know that's the type of level i'm at like
0: know. i would want to know how many buttons did that yeah. jacket have
1: by the way if anybody wants to know what vehicles they were traveling in at the time i can oh, tell don't you don't worry we're gonna do episodes
0: about uh, vehicles and gear and you know i know i can count on you because you are an. A... <laughs> i wanted to say you're such an expert but yes also deranged um thank you for joining me for this episode it's been a whirlwind of emotions but um i really enjoyed going through all these amazing you know um achievements and that was just the beginning of the beatles career uh, you actually
1: know? no it wasn't it wasn't even the beginning not even the beginning and we, could yeah, go, and and we can go that's off true. on a, another tangent yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: that's true that's just, true that's true no, yeah, it's just, it was just amazing. I really hope you all out there um, appreciated the episode and that you will be listening to please please me uh, today, the day of it. And I uh, recommend release.
1: in mono because it's the yes. first time I've ever listened to it in mono. Was literally today, just because I hadn't realized that I hadn't listened to it in mono before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we have the stereo vinyl, yeah, which I bought years ago, and, and uh, recently we and I had them as well. But since you the, had them uh, <laughs> mono of one.
0: You acquired? Acquired oh you
1: are quiet
0: we are quiet oh we are quiet yeah that's uh yeah. touchy topic. Topic.
1: anyway never listened to it before but listen to it in mono
0: yeah because it was recorded the latest
1: stuff neither here than there mono because it was actually recorded for stereo so it's yeah. mixed anyway but, but the the oh, early stuff
0: is just such a it, it's such a it big difference It jumps different... out of. yeah you feel like you have them there in yeah, a way it really you know? jumps out so, so if, you if you're if can... you gonna listen
1: to it and if you can Listen to Mono. Not that the stereo is crap, but it's crap compared it's to the, still mono. the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, or if you can,
0: mono. mono all the way. Yeah. So um, thank you very much again for listening. Listen to Please Please Me whenever you want today, especially to celebrate. But we always, you know, recommend listen to as many Beatles albums and songs as and you can. And come down
1: to the cabin, speak to Camilla about the podcast. Yeah, exactly. See- just so, come and interact.
0: Shall we remind um because I didn't mention it before, when are you on? Every Sunday. Cabin? Every From
1: Sunday. From 6.15 to 9pm. There you go. And it I happens am, at this Saturday we're playing and the Saturday after, but, yeah, but by the time this podcast yeah, goes out, <laughs> <really cool>. <laughs>
0: Exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm there basically all the time, so you can get two celebrities. <laughs> yeah, come down and speak. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but you can Geek get out, both you know. of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, we're always, you know, happy to talk about this because that's literally our biggest passion. And uh, remember to follow me on um, Instagram at the Cat's Whisker Podcast and on a TikTok at the Cat's Whisker. And you can actually follow Liam as well at Liam Mannion. What are you, Liam A50 Mannion something? <laughs> well anyway you'll find him tags in the post where i am promoting this episode and i'll see you in the next episode ciao